All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. All right, we're about to start. It is Sunday, October 23rd, 2022, and we are live. Well, normally we're on 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation. So we're normally on 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation WFDF on, on Sundays, but uh, they're doing maintenance at the radio station. So we, um, I'm broadcasting here on my social media platforms because we still have to get this information out, okay? So stand by, we're about to start. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, it's a very, very important show. And let's see. Oh, just a second. Let's get this going. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcasting on social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in also. All right, we're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Welcome to The African History Network show. It is Sunday, October 23rd, 2022, and we are live. I'm your host, brother, Michael M. Hotep. We're broadcasting on our social media platforms, our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Normally, we're, uh, we broadcast on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But they are uh, doing maintenance at the radio station, so they're not having uh, uh, live shows uh, tonight. But we're still going to uh, – I'm still broadcasting live so we can get this information out. It's a lot going on. Uh, I was on Roller Martin Unfiltered on uh, Friday uh, discussing uh, some of these topics uh, as well. So we are uh, right about two weeks away from uh, the midterm elections. These are the most significant midterm elections uh, since the 1876 uh, uh, midterm elections. The Well, I, I would say the um, yeah 1876 midterm elections, the year after the Civil War ended. Uh, and, and these are the second midterm elections that take place after and uh, insurrection, okay? So we have news coming out of Florida dealing with an African-American man in Florida uh, named Robert Lee Wood, uh, who was targeted by Governor Ron DeSantis uh, with this uh, Office of Election Crimes and Security uh, uh, Office, this Election Crimes and Security Office. And he was charged with voter fraud for voting illegally. Now he's an ex-felon. He received his voter registration card in the mail, and he thought he could vote legally. Uh, he has had his charges dropped. He has had his charges dropped. We know there were at least 20 people uh, who have been charged uh, under this uh, Office of uh, Election Crimes and Security, and he, he's, the, uh, he's the first of 20 people who have had uh, their charges drop. We also see uh, something similar taking place in uh, the state of Texas as well. So we're going to talk about this on uh, today's show. Black man in Florida targeted by Governor Ron DeSantis for voter fraud has charges dropped. Also, we're going to look at some of Florida's racist history of felony disenfranchisement laws. 
uh, Florida's racist history of felony disenfranchisement laws. And we see this going back to 1868 in, uh, when, when, uh, in the state of Florida, okay, three years after the Civil War ends. And it was designed to prevent a Negro legislature. It was designed to prevent a Negro legislature. But we see this in the territory of Florida, uh, felony, disenfran felony disenfranchisement laws going back to 1838. And this basically means that if you were uh, found guilty of the crime uh, or a felony, you lost your uh, uh, ability to vote. OK, so we're going to get deep into this history. All this deals with racism. We know that racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ide ideology of European white supremacy. And uh, this is a very, very deep history. Now, also, we see racism playing a part uh, when it comes to um, Louisiana and it comes to the voting maps, the district maps in Louisiana. There was an article from uh, National Public Radio, uh, NPR.org, uh, which deals with who counts as black, who counts as black in voting maps, who counts as black in voting maps. Some GOP state officials want that narrowed. And this deals with the state of Louisiana. Now, we know Louisiana is also a former Confederate state as well. We know uh, Louisiana, that, that territory becomes part of the uh, U.S. because of the uh, uh, Louisiana Purchase of 1803. And uh, the U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land uh, from France for less than three cents an acre and is going to actually double the territory of the U.S. at the time and is going to increase the uh, amount of fertile land that the U.S. has uh, to plant crops, which is going to increase the need for enslaved African labor, okay? This is the result of the Louisiana Purchase, all right? So if we look at, the, we're going to talk about this story here from uh, National Public Radio, who counts as black in voting maps? Some GOP state officials want that narrowed. And uh, we see when we look at this story, uh, when we look at this story here, we see that uh, the thorny question of who counts as black found its way before the U.S. Supreme Court again ensnared in a major legal battle over the Voting Rights Act that could further gut the landmark law, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and make it harder and harder to protect the political power of voters of color, especially African-Americans, especially African-Americans, because it was, it was because of Americans and what happened to us after uh, Reconstruction ends, this is why you needed a 1965 Voting Rights Act, okay? So all this deals with history. So we're, we're going to uh, discuss this on today's show as well on Alex Wagner's show on uh, MSNBC. She did worry about this this past week dealing with uh, what Louisiana is trying to do and who counts as black in voting maps. If our vote did not matter, why are Republicans working so hard to suppress the African-American vote as well as uh, non-white voters. If our vote did not matter, 
why are African American why are Republicans working so hard to suppress our vote? So we'll talk about that story and then also we'll deal with uh the uh the Okoy massacre of November second, nineteen twenty. The Okoy massacre of November second, nineteen twenty in Florida, Okoy, Florida. This was this this was when a white mob unleashed the worst election day violence in U.S. history. Okay, this took place in Florida, Okoy, Florida, November second, uh, nineteen twenty, and you're going to have about fifty African Americans uh, who were killed. All right, and once again, this deals with Florida. Okay, where you have felony disenfranchisement laws, and when we study uh, uh, Florida's felony felony disenfranchisement laws, going back to uh, when Florida was became a, after Florida becomes a state, going back to 1868, we see that you lost your right to vote for life in Florida. You lost your right to vote for life in Florida, and there were only four states in the country where you lost your right to vote for life. Okay, so we'll talk about that on today's show as well. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct your own behavior, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So you control the race of a man or a woman's thoughts. He controls the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. We deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events in history, politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. To sign up for our email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. To sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, also visit our, uh, our new website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. And uh, I'll give you some information as well about our online history classes that we have going on this week as well. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. And uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We have those. You can register for those at our at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Okay, uh, I want to jump into this first story, and we discussed this on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, this past Friday, October 21st as well. So I'm going to share a couple of excerpts from Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, also. Okay, uh, if we look at this story here from... Uh, ABC News um, from ABC News, Florida voter has election fraud charges touted by DeSantis dismissed. Florida voter has election fraud charges touted by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida dismissed. And, and if you watch this show and watch me on Roller Martin Unfiltered, you know I oftentimes say Florida needs to be desanitized. Florida needs to be desanitized. He sanitized. Governor Ron DeSantis needs to be fired. He's up for re-election November 8th, 2022. He needs to be voted out of office. Now, uh, a Florida, uh, an African-American man uh, named uh, who lives in Florida named Robert Lee Wood, who's 56 years old, had his election fraud charges uh, dismissed on Friday, October 21st 
2022, making him the first of 20 people who Governor Ron DeSantis uh, announced had been charged with voter fraud in August of 2022, okay? Uh, he's the first to beat his case. He's the, he's the first to uh, beat these charges. Now, the ruling by um, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Milton Hirsch, Milton Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H, uh, the ruling uh, dismissed the case after Woods' attorney argued that the prosecutor's office who filed the twin charges had no jurisdiction to do so. It was the state's attorney's office that filed the charges, and the infractions have to occur in at least two jurisdictions. Uh, this infraction, alleged infraction, occurred in only one jurisdiction, so the state's attorney's office had no jurisdiction to even file charges. Okay. Now, um, this this case garnered uh, national attention and controversy when it was announced on August 18, 2022. Governor Ron DeSantis said at the time that they were the, quote, opening salvo, quote unquote, opening salvo by Florida's newly funded Office of election crimes and security, office of election crimes and security, the crackdown on voter fraud. This is domestic terrorism. This is voter intimidation. This is like the voter intimidation that we saw with the Clinton, Mississippi massacre or riot of 1875 in Clinton, Mississippi, or the Okoye massacre in 1920 in Florida, or the Opelousa massacre of 1868 in Opelousa, Louisiana. This is pure, unadulterated voter intimidation, voter suppression, domestic terrorism coming from a governor who has presidential aspirations. And you think elections don't have consequences. Now, Robert Lee Wood, who's 56 years old, faced one count of making a false affirmation on a voter application and one count of voting as an unqualified elector. He had his charges dismissed on the grounds that the prosecutor lacked appropriate uh, jurisdiction. Now, uh, Robert Lee Wood was facing up to five years in prison and five thousand dollars in fines and fees. OK, for allegedly illegally voting in the 2020 election for allegedly illegally voting, basically almost two years ago. OK, for allegedly illegally voting. Okay, the police come to his house, they arrest him, serve, serve an arrest warrant. Now, when the charges were announced on August 18th, uh, 2022, Ron DeSantis said at a press conference that local prosecutors had been, quote unquote, loath to, uh, loathe to uh, take up election fraud cases. He said, now we have the ability with the attorney general and statewide prosecutor to bring those cases on behalf of the state of Florida, he said. But a judge on Florida, Judge Milton Hirsch, Miami-Dade County, um, Miami-Dade County uh, Circuit Judge, Judge Milton Hirsch, um, found that statewide that the statewide prosecutor did not have jurisdiction over one case in Miami. Statewide prosecutors which are an extension of the attorney general's office of the state of Florida are prosecuting all of the election fraud cases that were brought in August in order for the statewide prosecutor to have jurisdiction. The crimes alleged have to 
have occurred in at least two judicial circuits in order for the statewide prosecutor to have jurisdiction to prosecute the crimes alleged must have occurred in at least two judicial circuits judge milton hirsch uh agreed with the defense's argument with robert lee wood's defense's argument uh that the alleged violations applying to vote and voting while ineligible only occurred in miami-dade county thus the statewide prosecutor was found to not have jurisdiction now statewide prosecutors argued that the alleged crimes were committed in Leon County, in addition to Miami-Dade County, but the defendant's applications, uh, Robert Lee Wood's applications and votes were later transmitted to the Department of State in Tallahassee, Florida. Argued that alleged offenses uh, only happened in Miami-Dade County, okay? The judge sided with the defense, even citing Shakespeare's Henry VI in, in his order granting the motion to dismiss. Uh, judge Milton Hirsch, uh, said, quote, his arms spread wider than a dragon's wings, unquote. Uh, the judge wrote in his order in reference to the statewide prosecutor, quote, how much wider even than that does the statewide prosecutor seek to extend his reach? It is an old truth that all politics is local. Judge Milton Hirsch added, the statewide prosecutor seeks to stand that old truth on its end quote, okay? All right, now, Larry Davis, the attorney for Robert Lee Wood, said that his motion to dismiss on the grounds of jurisdiction has been circulated to attorneys representing the other election fraud defendants, the 19 other election fraud defendants in Florida right now. The statewide prosecutor can now appeal the case if unsuccessful, the Democratic Miami-Dade uh, state attorney uh, Catherine Fernandez Rundle, R-U-N-D-L-E, will also have the option to file charges, okay? All right, so check out the rest of this uh, uh, story here from ABC News. A uh, Florida voter has election fraud charges touted by DeSantis dismissed, okay? Now, we also saw uh, something similar to this taking place in Texas. Uh, there's a good article from... Uh, the Washington Post dealing with uh, GOP voter fraud crackdown as charges are dropped in Florida and Texas. GOP voter fraud crackdowns falter as charges are dropped in uh, Florida and Texas. Okay. And if we look at this uh, story very quickly here from This is from uh, actually the New York Times. I think I may have said Washington Post. The story is actually from the New York Times. This deals with both Florida and Texas. Now, if our votes didn't matter, why are Republicans working so hard to suppress the African-American vote and many Latinos and, and Asian-Americans and uh, uh, millennials and Gen Z, et cetera? GOP voter fraud crackdowns falter as charges dropped in Florida and Texas. One man who had his charges dismissed uh, was among a group of former felons who were rounded up in August under orders from Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. And this also talks about um, 
Robert Lee Wood um, as well. Okay, so check out this article here. Um, check out this piece here from uh, the New York Times as well by uh, Neil Vigdor, by Neil Vigdor, uh, October 21st, 2022. Okay. They, they, so they talk about Robert Lee Wood, okay, 56 years old. Um, he spent two decades in prison for second degree murder. Mr. Wood was among uh, the 20 people who were recently arrested in Florida on voter, uh, voter fraud charges and became the first defendant to have them dropped. Uh, that happened in uh, Miami-Dade County Circuit Court uh, on Friday, October 21st. Now, they also talk about Texas. And on Monday, uh, this past Monday in uh, Texas, which was October 17th, a district judge, a district district court judge in Texas set aside the indictment of Hervis Earl Rogers, another African-American man. I remember this case here. He stood in line for something like seven hours. Yeah, I remember this case when it happened. Um, and we talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered as well. Uh, a a district court judge in Texas set aside the indictment of Hervis Earl Rogers, an African-American Houston man who gained widespread attention for waiting seven hours in line to vote during the 2020 primary election. In 2021, uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's a Republican, charged Hervis Rogers with voting illegally because he was on parole. He charged him with voting illegally because he was on parole. Once again, this is this is pure, unadulterated voter intimidation to make examples out of these people to suppress the African-American vote and scare people who have felony records, et cetera, from voting, even when they get votations, uh, 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 even when they get voter uh, uh, registration cards in the mail, et cetera. Now, a lack of evidence of widespread voter fraud has not stopped Republicans from aggressively pursuing it in states where they hold power. Now, the unraveling of the two high profile cases has compromised the legitimacy of those efforts. Brian Griffin, the spokesman for Governor Ron DeSatan, uh, said in an email on Friday, that the state disagreed with the dismissal of charges against uh, Robert Lee Wood and would appeal the ruling. Okay, go ahead and appeal. Um, Governor, the, the order needs to be desanitized, okay? Governor Ron DeSantis has to be defeated. Charlie is, the, is a much better candidate, even though he used to be a Republican and he, he's a Democrat now. Uh, he's the former Republican governor of the state of Florida, Governor Ron DeSatan needs to be defeated. Okay, so we discussed all of this on um, we discussed all of this on Roland Martin Unfiltered on uh, Friday, October twenty first, and uh, Roland spoke with Desmond Mead. Okay, um, and uh, Desmond Mead heads up the uh, uh, the Florida. Uh, the, the organization to restore voting rights uh, for felons, uh, Florida Rights uh, Restoration Coalition. 
And uh, we've talked about Desmond Mead here on the show before, and uh, he's been on Roland Martin Unfiltered a number of times. And Desmond Mead led the effort back in 2018 to uh, put the issue of the restoration of voting rights for uh, ex-offenders, uh, put that on the ballot in uh, Florida, okay? And it got, I think, something like 66% of the vote. It passed with about about 66% of the vote, something like that. Uh, passed overwhelmingly, okay? But then what the Florida State Legislature did was they then uh, added a stipulation that all the all your fees had to be paid, um, restitution, fees, things like this had to be paid before you can vote to put another obstacle in the way of uh, ex-offenders voting. So we discussed all this on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered, and uh, let's go to let's go to this clip here. All right, folks, we told you how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been targeting black and brown folks formerly incarcerated there with his BS voter crime integrity waste of waste of money unit. Uh, and we told you told you about there were about 20 some people who were arrested. We showed you that video. You remember the video? Uh, let's play it again. This is a video that was released uh, by the cam video uh, where the police. I mean, they were apologetic, literally in arresting individuals who supposedly voted illegally, even though the state said they could actually vote. Well, Florida judges set a precedent today uh, by, guess what, throwing out charges against Robert Lee Wood. Um, one, one count of voting as an unqualified elector and one count of making a false affirmation on a voter application. The judge dismissed his charges because the prosecutor lacked jurisdiction. The state alleged Wood registered and voted knowing he was ineligible because of a 1991 conviction. Wood said he did not know he was ineligible to vote because he received a Florida voter registration card. Under Florida law, individuals who exit prison, that's right, lose, have their, have their voting rights restored after leaving the system. Now, again, what you have here is Ron DeSantis trying to conjure up this whole idea of voter fraud. Now, if you want actual voter fraud, go to the villages, a largely Republican community where there were people who were actually arrested for illegally voting. Desmond Mead, the executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. He joins me now from Florida. I, um, I mean, bottom line in here, you know, y'all got Amendment 4 passed, voted overwhelmingly, Republicans in the state. They do not want to see all those formerly incarcerated people voting. Uh, they put roadblocks. They threw up there, having now to pay all your fines. And, and they went to the Supreme Court, got it affirmed there. And it's just one thing after another. Now you have this latest attack against folks uh, who are formerly incarcerated. And we're talking about 20-some-odd folks. Would you say there were, other, there were lots more who were being targeted by... DeSantis. Oh, yes. Uh, no, Roland, one of the things I tell folks, you know, when they ask me about my reaction about this case getting dropped, you know, I have, uh, I mean, I'm guarded enthusiasm. It's because, you know, I know that there are thousands of people, you know, back in, uh, I believe, prior to June of 2021, uh, there was a list of thousands of individuals uh, that was given to the state uh, that allegedly should not have been voting. And, you know, people talk about the 20, but we know that 10 folks prior to the 20 in, in April of this year 
was uh, arrested. One of them was a homeless man. Uh, you had a grandfather that was pulled out of his home and arrested. But I want to share this with you, uh, Roland, because I think this really centers where I and my organization are coming from. Uh, FDLE did an investigation of the initial 10 people in Alachua County uh, back at the beginning of, of this year. And one of the statements from one of the gentlemen uh, that was on the investigation was like, read like this, I wanted to be a part of civilization instead of being hidden away from crack and everything else in the dark hole. I wanted to be a part of life again. So I said, let me try to vote. It felt good to be a part of something instead of being hidden away. You know, and I, and I read that statement because it really centers me at, at, on people, right? At the end of the day, man, we're talking about returning citizens, citizens of this country that just want to be a part of democracy. But because of the political gamesmanship uh, that we see going on, that we have people that are suffering, people that are, are, are being arrested, people that are being traumatized, families that are hurting. You know, what we don't hear about is that every man or woman that gets arrested, if they're the breadwinner for their family, right. while they're incarcerated trying to post bail, guess what? Who is providing for their family? These people could be losing their jobs. And there we go, exasperating the collateral consequences that people with convictions or people that are interacting with our criminal justice face. And all for what? Right? For some kind of gain? You know, because at the end of the day, none of these people should have even been arrested. The thing here that um, is, is, is amazing that they're arrested. Now, now, now they got to go through all of this crap. Now they got to go through the legal system. Uh, now they got to hire attorneys. Now they got to incur more costs. We just go on and on and on again. And, and that was also shameful. And then now you go to court and the charges get dropped. Well, they can't recoup all that money they lost. And it's not like these are people uh, with, with sitting on a bunch of money. I mean, you see this video right here, this black woman, she's like, what? And then she goes, let me go tell my husband. Uh, no, man, we got it. We'll go tell your husband. I mean, it's crazy. Well, you know, I, I'm, one of the things, I, I'm just grateful that God has really allowed me and my wife to really be in the line of work that we are because right now, you know, FRC, our efforts have created funds to allow people who've been arrested, we will take care of their bail, right? And we'll also, if they want to, we would help provide them legal defense free of charge, right? And then the one thing that we have to also worry about is that when they're arrested, that arrest get on their record. Then, of course, you know, Sheena with the Clean Slate Initiative, that's something that they're working on to clear these arrest records off of people's records so people will be able to get jobs and housing and be able to really thrive, right, and, 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 and be successful in life. Um, and, and, and let's be clear what's happening here. You've got... You've got Republican state's attorneys who are saying, okay, this makes no sense. This was a letter, uh, go to my iPad, this was a letter uh, that uh, you sent me, and this is uh, dated October 14, 2022. Sex offenders voting in elections. The Lake County Supervisor of Elections presented six cases for review concerning convicted sex offenders voting in the 2020 general election. Letter goes through laying out the statute, things along those lines. This is what the state's attorney office said. In all yes, and rightfully, rightfully so, Roland. You know, one of the uh, things that a lot of folks are not talking about is caught up in this, this snare or this uh, persecution of returning citizens 
are people who registered as Republicans, right? And so when, when, when we look at the total breadth of people who've been impacted, you know, I thought that this was a wonderful opportunity to really talk about what does democracy really mean to us, right. right? We know some people, they were concerned about the raid on Mar-a-Lago, saying, you know, why would the FBI want, want to raid uh, Donald Trump's residence two years before the presidential election? Well, if they're concerned about that, they ought to be outraged that people are getting arrested on the eve of election. Right. Right? Not one or two years before an election, but on the eve of elections and during elections, you have people being drugged by their home, out of their homes. You have people who, uh, when they were arrested, the SWAT team came to arrest them as if they were Pablo Escobar. And it is about intimidation. And, 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 and here's the thing this letter says. It says um, two things. A person who willfully swears or affirms falsely to any oath or affirmation or willfully procures another person to swear or affirm falsely to oath or affirmation, okay, goes on explains committing a felony. This is what they say. In all of the instances where sex offenders voted, each appear to have been encouraged to vote by various mailings and misinformation. Each were given voter registration cards which would lead one to believe they could legally vote in the election. The evidence fails to show willful actions on a part of these individuals. Therefore, the state is unable to file charges. And this is not, <laughs> from you for you, this is not a progressive state's attorney. That's right. This is a person that is following the law and not getting caught up in politics. You know, that gentleman whose statement I read, in his particular case, him and nine other people, while they were incarcerated, was approached by the local supervisor of election that told them that they can vote, right? In one case, the supervisor of elections told one of the uh, individuals that was incarcerated, give me your name, right? I'm going to run your name through the system. If you get a pamphlet from me, that means that you can register to vote. Guess what? A couple weeks later, what this man got? He got a pamphlet. So he registered to vote, and he voted, right? And then two years later, now the state is coming and attacking him when they ought to be attacking the system that is broken. And that is something that we've been saying since Bush v. Gore, when we've seen thousands of people were removed from the voting roll because they were erroneously classified as returning citizens or being unable to vote because of a felony conviction. So we knew that this system had problems way back then, right? Amendment 4 just exasperated the problems, especially with the requirement of the payment of fines and fees. But the system needs to be fixed. And before a state can take a person, American citizen's liberty, right? That's the thing that is guarded the most in this country, right? A person's liberty. Before the state can just haphazardly just take a person's liberty like that, they need to clean up their side of the street. They need to get their ends taken care of. They need to do their doggone job. Um, well, it's what again, what this is, I think what those arrests are for is to actually scare the hell out of anybody formerly incarcerated to go, oh, you know what, I, 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 I bet not vote because, you know, I might get arrested. I mean, that's we see what Ron DeSantis is trying to do. Roland, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come on the show, because I understand that this may have a chilling impact on people. 
right? But I want to ensure anybody that's listening in the state of Florida, and if you have friends or family that's in the state of Florida, that the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, I can tell you right this right now, right here, right, in living color, that we're standing with each and every one of them. That's why we started the bail fund that anyone could donate to. We're bailing people out. And that gentleman that had his case shop is because we arranged for him to be uh, uh, represented by a, a criminal uh, a legal defense counsel, right? And so we're fighting this tooth and nail. We're pushing back. And our message is, is that a person ought to do their due diligence to see if they're eligible. And if they truthfully, honestly, earnestly believe that they have the right to vote, that they should not let any of this prevent them from going out to vote. And if they think that they may not have the right to vote, at the very bare minimum, they need to get five to ten of their family members and friends to turn out and vote on their behalf, right, in this election. Make sure that we're sending politicians a very clear message. Returning citizens don't scare easy. That's been made. Always good to see you, man. Thank you so very much. Uh, and uh, look, we're going to be right here again, let people know about these issues uh, because what too many of these Republicans are doing uh, is that they don't want free and fair elections. They don't want to open the opportunities for everybody to vote. And this is all meant to have a chilling effect on the formerly incarcerated, the 1.4 million people in Florida. Uh, and it makes no sense whatsoever. And as you said, there are people who are formerly incarcerated who, who are registering as Republicans. So there's no assumption that all of these people are going to be Democrats. Uh, but what they're doing here just simply makes no sense whatsoever. And it's a massive waste of taxpayer money. Oh, of course. It, it definitely is. And, you know, it, it's a shame that this is going on now. You know, one of the things I said earlier was that, you know, you would expect people who we elected the office or appoint into certain positions to not try to manufacture excuses for a failed system or a broken system. What we expect these individuals to do is to develop solutions, right, to these problems not put the blame on citizens when the responsibility is really on the state. All right, then. Uh, Desmond, I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. Uh, again, uh, another example of what Republicans are doing is in the state of Texas. They cannot stand Harris County. Why? Because Harris County has gone blue in many ways. And so uh, Republican Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant uh, Governor Dan Patrick, the Secretary of State, uh, the uh, thug uh, Attorney General uh, Paxton, they have been targeting Harris County. Remember, they battled them when it came to uh, the voting changes they put in place during COVID. Now they're trying to send in observers and to look at the vote in Harris County. Why? No reason whatsoever. Now Harris County leaders, Mayor Sylvester Turner, uh, Judge Linda Hidalgo, they have sent a request to the Justice Department, Civil Rights Division, for federal monitors. In the letter, Harris County officials say they are concerned about the timing of the Texas Secretary of State and Attorney General's plan to send inspectors, election security trainers, and legal advisors to observe the election. Harris County is the state's largest metropolitan area. And of course, as I said, Democratic leaning. The changing demographics. Texas Republicans have made it harder to vote in the state, and this move adds to the restrictive measures to intimidate and add doubt to voters' confidence. The DOJ has not responded to Harris County's request. 
Joining us now is Harris County Attorney, uh, Harris County Attorney Christian Menifee, one of the signees of the letter. Christian, glad to have you on the letter. Christian okay, let me pause it right here because I want to fast forward to, uh, just stand by, I want to fast forward to uh, when uh, Roland goes to uh, the panel, okay? But uh, we discussed this on um, Friday, October 21st on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, somebody asked, uh, why am I sharing this? I'm, I'm a panelist on Roland's show every Friday. I've been on there for two years. August, I started August, uh, I think it was August or October 2020. I've been on for two years. And this deals um, directly with what we're talking about here. So let me uh, fast forward to this when he goes to uh, the panel here. Okay. Let's go back to this clip. And then we're going to get into some of the history of Florida's felony disenfranchisement law and why it was put in place. This is why you needed um, Amendment 4, okay? This is why you needed Amendment 4 uh, in 2018. And if we look at this, uh, if we look at this uh, piece here from the Brennan Center for Justice, and then we'll go back to the clip. This right here, okay, Brennan Center for Justice, uh, Voting Rights Restoration Efforts in Florida. Uh, this piece is from uh, August 10th, 2022. Uh, was last updated August 10th, 2022. Amer uh, originally May 31st, 2019. Uh, disenfranchisement in Florida, talks about Amendment 4. In November 2018, nearly 65% uh, of Florida voters approved Amendment 4, uh, a constitutional amendment that automatically restored voting rights to most Floridians with uh, past convictions who had completed the terms of their sentence. Shortly thereafter, in June 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis signed Senate Bill 7066 into law prohibiting returning citizens, ex-offenders, from voting unless they pay off certain legal financial obligations, LFOs, legal financial obligations imposed by a court pursuant to a felony conviction. They put in another obstacle. They put it on the ballot to restore voting rights. It, 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 it was approved overwhelmingly, okay? It's nearly 65% of, of voters approved it in the on the 2018 ballot. Then the Republican-controlled state legislature in Florida then comes up with Senate Bill 77066 to put another obstacle in the way of the Amendment 4 that just passed, once again, to suppress the vote. Okay, the Brennan Center for Justice and other civil and voting rights groups filed a lawsuit challenging the law. The trial court found Florida's pay-to-vote system, Florida's pay-to-vote system, unconstitutional in part because it is often not possible to determine whether a returning citizen is eligible to vote because the state does not reliably or consistently track data on LFOs, okay, uh, uh, legal financial obligations. However, the in-bank uh, uh, 11th reversed and vacated the lower court's uh, ruling and they have a link there for more information. Now, this part right here, 
the history of Amendment 4. Prior to Amendment 4 in 2018, Florida's Constitution, Florida's state constitution, permanently disenfranchised all citizens who have been convicted of any felony offense unless the clemency board restored their voting rights, a process that will now apply to those who have not had their rights restored by Amendment 4, including anyone convicted of murder or felony sexual offenses. Now, between 2010 and 2016, the number of disenfranchised Floridians grew by nearly 150,000 just in that six year period of time between the year 2010 and 2016 the number of disenfranchised floridians who lost their right to vote because of a felony conviction grew by nearly 150,000 uh to an estimated total of 1,686,000 in 2016 okay more than one in five of florida's black voting age population was disenfranchised because of a felony conviction. More than 20%, more than 20% of Florida's African-American voting age population is eliminated from voting because of this felony disenfranchisement law that goes, that dates back to 1868 in, in the Florida state constitution, which was put in place to prevent a uh, to, to, to prevent a Negro legislature. It was put in place purposely to prevent a Negro legislature because in 1868 and right after slavery ends, 48% of the population of the state of Florida were African-Americans as a legacy of slavery because Florida was a slaveholding state and Florida was a, a Confederate state that fought, that seceded from the union, fought on behalf of the traitors to the union to maintain slavery. They feared, even before the 15th Amendment was adopted in 1870, they feared that these African-Americans would vote and take over the Florida state legislature. So they made sure they put policies in place to keep that from happening. And, these, and, and we're still dealing with the legacy of this today. We're still dealing with the legacy of slavery, we're still dealing with the legacy of the Reconstruction era to this day. Okay, so let I want to go back to uh, this clip here from Roland Martin Unfiltered. So uh, this is go to my iPad, please. Uh, when it pulls up, it's called uh, the uh, fight. For, it's called the Fight for Democracy. I'm going to pull it up right now. Give me one second. Uh, we're going to be there with a, a number of entertainers, other speakers, uh, and activists as well. Um, again, encouraging folks to vote. Early voting is taking place. Uh, we are seeing massive turnout of early voting uh, in various places. And so you see it right there, the Fight for Democracy. Uh, again, working with the NAACP Sunday, 4 to 7 p.m. Uh, at Avenida Plaza. Uh, and Bun B, Latoya Luckett, Slim Thug, DJ Mr. Rogers, DJ Frank Ski, Lil Kiki, uh, Spud Howard, Lenora, Mango Punch, and many others will be there. And this is a partnership with a number of organizations. This GOTV rally taking place in Houston. Uh, let's introduce my panel right now, folks, to talk about this again, uh, what is happening, because I, I, I keep warning y'all, we, we can sit here and play games if we want to, uh, but what Republicans are trying to do uh, is devious understand uh, how utterly ridiculous it is 
uh, and their whole strategy is to keep us from voting because they know if we use our power and if we drive our numbers uh, in a significant way, they cannot win, which is why I keep telling y'all, if we start voting at 70 and 75 and 80, 85, 90% of our capacity, we could flip elections all across the country, all across uh, the South, the Midwest, the Southeast, but it can't happen when our turnout is at 35, 40, 45, 50%. It simply can't happen. Matt Manning, civil rights attorney, Michael Imhotep, host the African History Network show, Dr. Nola Haynes, uh, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Glad to have all three of y'all here. I mean, look, Matt, you're there in Texas. You, you take the case in Florida, how they're targeting folks, uh, uh, those formerly incarcerated. You look at what they're doing, trying to move to Harris County. This is all a part of the Republican strategy across the country to keep us from voting. This is classic voter suppression. Absolutely. There is no question that it's classic voter suppression. And as it relates to Florida, what's particularly interesting there is that Ron DeSantis, obviously, we know he's doing all of this to try to get reelected, you know, dispatch states uh, attorneys who didn't even have jurisdiction. So, you know, the court threw it out because there was no evidence that the uh, crimes actually took place in two different counties. And that's like a threshold issue. That's something that a, a basic prosecutor would look at and know whether they have jurisdiction or not. So that's what's particularly insidious is that, you know, they're they're going forward on claims that they know they can't prove because they want to chill people's right to vote. As it relates to Texas, it's, you're exactly right. I mean, they attacked Harris County during the pandemic, trying to, I think, cut it down to one uh, drive-through mail uh, ballot box for an entire county of four million people. I mean, not even hiding their their position and not even hiding their strategy. So I think you're right. I think the right to vote is completely under assault here in Texas. And Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, as I say every week, are both trying to use people as pawns to get reelected. Um, all of this is not only the Republican strategy, but their individual strategy to try to stay and uh, to leverage some of that you know, votes from the Republican base and to, to let people know, look, we're doing everything we can to keep this America the way you want it and the way we think it should be. Uh, and they're not hiding that fact at all. Uh, uh, look, Nola, I mean, I, I can tell you right now, um, <clears throat> folks who are watching, people out there who are like, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure. Look, there's a very deliberate, deliberate effort by Republicans across this country. We could just go state by state. So this is not, oh, isolated. No, this is all by design because they know if they shrink the electorate, they got a better chance of winning. Why Donald Trump so angry? Because because the electorate expanded in 2020 with drop with mail-in balloting and, and uh, ballot drop boxes, and Republicans are pissed that they lost. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it's really nice to be in studio, so I'm happy to be here. And, you know, it really, it, it is strategic. And it's, it's strategic and it's very dangerous. I often feel like, well, lately, like Thanos snapped his finger and like half of the population across galaxies disappeared. It's like he snapped his finger and we're like back in the 1950s before Brown, before civil rights legislation. That's what it really feels like. The fact that the federal government has to come in and monitor voting that is just mind-blowing, and it's setting a very dangerous precedent. And, you know, again, by design and strategy, it's to intimidate voters not to vote, especially when we think about 
The change in our country, it has been over time, but it's also been abrupt in many ways. You have people who just want to live their lives. They want to get up and go to work, you know, enjoy, enjoy their own time with their friends and their family. We weren't thinking about having to get up and marching in the streets to protect our voting rights. So there's this level of comfort that we've all been in to now we're waking up to a very different world where we're not mobilized the same ways in which we were. So I'm really happy, I'm really happy that that event is happening that you're going to in Houston, but we really woke up and we're in a different time and it's calling for different types of measures. And, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, you know, we have to get out there and we have to continue fighting. As tired as I know, especially black folks are, we have to continue fighting because we, we are not, we are not in a country right now where equality and equity are on par. You know, we are still having to fight for just basic, basic liberties, basic democratic rights, such as voting. Michael, the, the, when we walk through this, when we talk about, we walk through these issues and people go, oh, you know, this is really not that big of a deal, it's not that alarming. You know, what, what, what they're not understanding when Steve Bannon and his minions out here are saying this crazy stuff, when they're talking about what they want to take over, they're serious. They are running people for secretaries of state. Absolutely. For, for election supervisors. They are desperately trying to throw overturn elections. And the thing I keep trying to tell all these black people, they're not hiding it. This is not, right. this is not overt. No, this is not covert. It's very overt. They're saying, if we win, Trump's going to win. They're saying it. Yeah, and, and they're, they're letting you know what's going to happen. They say they're going to impeach Biden. They say they're going to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. But you talk about Stephen K. Bannon. Uh, Bannon said some months ago on his podcast that the way to political power in America today is through the local school boards. And if you study what's happened with the local school boards and the um, the um, fights over banning books, the fights over critical race theory, this is funded by dark money. This is funded by uh, uh, and they've organized numerous organizations. There was an expose by NBC News and they estimated about 165 right wing um, parent organizations across the country. OK, have been funded and they get help from Fox News and politicized by Fox News. And they're using this to go from the from the grassroots up to the federal government and take it and, and focus on local uh, offices, local politicians, local political offices from the grassroots up. You look at we look at what's going on in Florida. I cannot stress this enough. I know, I know, Roland, uh, when you were interviewing Desmond Mead, and, and shout out to that brother, you were saying that this doesn't make sense or something like this. It makes perfect sense when you understand the history of Florida. Okay, Florida was the first state to have poll taxes in 1889, before Mississippi had poll taxes. Florida instituted its felony disenfranchisement law in 1868, two years before the 15th Amendment was, was adopted. And when, when you go research the history of Florida, they did this. They inst instituted uh, felony disenfranchisement laws in a state that had a 48% black population. Almost half of the state of Florida, after slavery ended, was African-American. And they knew that if they did not put laws in place, these black people would vote and take over the state legislature. Yep. Okay? So this makes perfect sense. 
What we have to understand is that this may be our last free and fair election here in 2022. And this, that's real. This, yeah. This, this, people don't understand how dangerous this right. stuff is. These people are playing for keeps. Indeed. Indeed. Got to go to a quick break, folks. We come back. We're going to talk about an effort, the combined comedy with voting. Uh, it's all about folks using every tool at our disposal to turn people out in this November midterm elections. Uh, we'll discuss that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. So that was from um, Friday, October 21st. You can watch that full uh, video on uh, Roland Martin's YouTube channel, Roland, Roland S. Martin on YouTube and uh, uh, Roland S. Martin on Facebook. Also download the Black Star Media app and uh, you can uh, watch the show there uh, as well. And I'll post the link here on the thread of the broadcast also to the video. Uh, if we look at, I, I want to look at this, I want to look at this history here, okay? We want to look at some of the history of Florida's felony disenfranchisement law and why it was put in place. And this is why history is so important and a people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. Um, and, and we see history, if it's not repeating itself, is definitely uh, rhyming. If it's not repeating itself, it is definitely rhyming. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let me pull this up just a second. All right. And then also I want to show you this article that we've talked about numerous times uh, here on the show before. This deals with, uh, this deals with the expose that I mentioned from uh, NBC News. Okay. Go to this here. Okay, this article right here, read this one. This is about 16 pages when I printed it out. This deals with critical race theory battle invades school boards with help from conservative groups. Critical race theory battle invades school boards uh, with help from conservative groups, okay? This is from NBC News, June 15th, 2021. Uh, in towns nationwide, well-connected conservative activists, well-connected conservative activists um, and Fox News have ramped up the tension in fights over race and equity in schools. And this is all, uh, uh, all part of an effort to uh, galvanize uh, Republicans, galvanize conservatives, to get them to turn out to vote in the November 2022 midterm elections. All right, uh, this is from June 15, 2021. So, this gives you background information on uh, the book bans and uh, uh, parents' rights and all this stuff and how this whole how this whole thing happened. Okay, 
if we look at page three quickly here, it says uh, conflicts like this are playing out in cities and towns across the country. Conflicts like this are playing out in uh, cities and towns across the country amid the rise of at least 165 uh, local and national groups that aim to disrupt lessons on race and gender, according to an NBC News analysis of media reports and organizations and organizations uh, promotional materials reinforced by conservative think tanks, law firms, and activist parents. These groups have found allies and families frustrated over COVID-19 restrictions in schools and have weaponized, have weaponized the right's opposition to critical race theory, turning it into a political rallying point. All right, read this, read this uh, entire article from NBC News, critical race theory battle invades school boards with help from conservative groups. Okay, now, if we go back to, um, I wanna go to this piece from uh, the, the Brennan Center for Justice. And this deals with a uh, history of Florida's felony disenfranchisement law. This one right here, this is at Brennan Center for Justice, this is from Florida's, uh, Florida, uh, deals with Florida Rights Restoration Coalition in conjunction with them also, which is Desmond Mead's organization. History of Florida's disenfranchisement uh, provision. Let's see, let's, uh, can we increase that? Okay, do it like this. All right, so the uh, Florida State Constitution imposes a lifetime ban on voting. And let me see, how can I, I want to, uh, increase the size of this okay we'll just do it like this here Florida state constitution imposes a lifetime ban on voting by every person with a felony conviction unless the governor and his cabinet choose to restore the individual's right to vote the ban has long barred uh, African-Americans from the polls at twice the rate, at twice the rate of other Florida citizens, even without counting those who are still serving criminal sentences, 13% of voting age uh, African-Americans in Florida have lost their right to vote, okay? Uh, even without counting those who are still serving criminal sentences, 13% of uh, uh, voting age African-Americans have lost their right to vote. But generally speaking, when you count those who are incarcerated, it's over 20%, over one in five of Florida's African-American voting age population has lost their right to vote. Now the constitutional provision disenfranchising uh, people with felony convictions, convictions 
was originally enacted in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War in 1868, okay? And on Tuesdays, I teach an online history class from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968, where we go through and deal with all this history and look at these laws, look at these state constitutions, et cetera. So you can register for that at our, at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. So the, uh, enacted in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1868 as one of several tools to suppress the votes of newly freed slaves. 100 years later in 1968, the provision was reenacted despite its history of discrimination and its continuing racially disparate effects. Felony disenfranchisement has long been used to diminish the voting power of Florida's African-American population and the law continues to have that effect. Felony disenfranchisement has long been used to diminish the voting of Florida's African-American population and the law continues to have that effect. Okay, so if we go and look at this history here, okay, um, criminal disenfranchisement and reconstruction, Florida, okay? So reconstruction is 1865 to 1877 during that period of time. When African, when you have the, and you're having the 13th, 14th, the 15th amendments passed to the U.S. Constitution, you have the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is um, letting African Americans legally enter into uh, contracts and is protecting their uh, rights to uh, enter into labor contracts, different things like this. Okay, um, in 1868, Florida dramatically expanded criminal disenfranchisement. 1868. For the first time in 1868, the state barred from the voter polls all people with felony convictions, while at the same time, uh, they created a host of new felonies, okay? So Florida, 18, so in 1865, they institute their black codes, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, okay, which regulates the, the movements of the newly freed African-Americans, but then they are going to uh, uh, dramatically expand what is classified as a felony, okay, so that you can exclude more African-Americans from voting. For the first time in 1868, the state of Florida barred from the polls all people with felony convictions, while at the same time creating a host of new felony crimes. The list of disqualifying infamous crimes was expanded as well. Okay, now, um, uh, uh, blacks were disproportionately disenfranchised under the new provision because state policies at the, at the time were designed to control newly freed slaves through the criminal justice system. In 1865, the Florida State Legislature enacted Black Codes, 1865, okay? So the Civil War, for most practical purposes, comes to an end April 9th, 1865, when General Robert E. Lee surrenders to General Ulysses S. Grant in Virginia, Appomattox Courthouse, but it doesn't officially come to an end until August of 1866, 
because um, there were other Confederate armies that still were operating, even though General Robert E. Lee's army was the largest, his army was not the only one. So there were other Confederate armies like General Joseph E. Johnston's army of Tennessee and Nathan Bedford Forrest's army as well. So terms of surrender had to be negotiated with each one of those Confederate generals. So after, after that takes place, it's going to be in August of 1866 that President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln after Lincoln is assassinated in April 1865, President Andrew Johnson uh, announces the official end to the U.S. Civil War 16 months after April 1865. So in, the, in 1865, the Florida State Legislature enacted Black Codes as a way to control freedmen or former slaves, the black freedmen. A crucial component of the black codes was an expansion of the criminal justice system to deal with minor offenses that state legislators believed African-Americans were likely to commit, okay? They expanded crimes that they believed that African-Americans were likely to commit and that had been formally punished by their masters. These were crimes that have been formally punished by their masters. So they're using the laws to uh, control the movement and actions of African-Americans in, 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 in trying to um, uh, re-envision slavery, okay? Trying to re-envision the control mechanisms from slavery, trying to refashion that after slavery ends. The black codes had their uh, desired effect. By the 1870s and 1880s, estimates show that more than 95% of the convicts in, in uh, the Florida uh, convict camps were African-American. Okay, more than 95% of the convicts in the Florida convict camps, okay, prison camps, were African American. A captain in one of the camps at that time noted it was possible to send a Negro to, uh, to prison. Let's see, hold on. It was possible to send a Negro to prison on almost any pretext, but difficult to get a white man there. It was possible to send a Negro to prison on almost any pretext, but difficult to get a white man there. Now, when we look at felony disenfranchisement in 1868, the 1868 Florida State uh, Constitution instituted felony disenfranchisement and was part of a larger effort to prevent a Negro legislature. It was part of a larger effort to prevent a, a Negro legislature. So when we, so what's the, the voter suppression that's taking place today, not just in Florida, but in Texas, in Georgia, especially these former Confederate states, this is all a continuation of what happened during Reconstruction and these southern states put these laws in place to prevent a Negro legislature, okay? 
And when, and when you look at what happened in Mississippi in 1890, the Mississippi State Constitution, where they imposed poll taxes and literacy tests, okay? They did this, Solomon Saladin Calhoun, who was the, who was the white county judge, who presided over the Mississippi State Convention, okay? He said that they did this to uh, exclude the Negro. That's not me saying it, that's what he said. This is an article I, I refer to often. May 1st, 2021, Rod, Ronald G. Schaefer, Washington Post, the Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890. Quote, we came here to exclude the Negro. The poll taxes, that were Florida was the first state to have poll taxes in 1889 before Mississippi. Mississippi writes this into their state constitution at this convention, and this what Mississippi did became known as the Mississippi Plan, which became the model of what the other southern states did to suppress the African American vote and to get us wiped out of political office during, during Reconstruction and after Reconstruction. Okay, there are about 2,000 African American men who get elected to public office and get, and, and you're going to have about 20 um, that get elected to Congress, things like this during the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877. When Reconstruction comes to an end with the Compromise of 1877, where Republicans uh, agree to let uh, where Democrats agree to let Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican candidate for the presidency, become president if he will remove the remaining Union troops out of those southern states, South Carolina and Florida, and, and there was one other state, okay, because there was only three states by this time that still had Union troops in them, but they were still enforcing to a certain extent the new rights of African Americans. The, the 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 Democratic Party at that time they wanted the remaining Union troops removed out of the South, okay, in exchange for letting Rutherford B. Hayes become president because neither Rutherford B. Hayes or Samuel J. Tilden, who was the uh, Democratic candidate for president, neither one had enough electoral college votes to become president, okay. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was one vote short, if I if I remember correctly. Okay, he was one vote shy. So this was the compromise. This brings about an end to Reconstruction. And for all these black Republicans and black conservatives like Candace Owens and uh, was named Keith Jackson, who I was on uh, uh, the Tammy Mack show, uh, the business of being black on the Fox Old TV network. And I was dealing with these two black Republicans that don't understand history. One of them was a big Donald Trump supporter. Okay. They never want to talk about the compromise of 1877 where Republicans turn their backs on African-Americans and betrayed African-Americans. They don't want to talk about that. And they don't want to talk about the Lily White movement in 1928, which was an effort by Republicans to get Herbert Hoover elected as president during the uh, 1928 presidential election. He was running against a moderate uh, Democrat from New York named Al Smith. So the Republicans implement a Southern strategy. They appeal to five uh, former Confederate states to get segregationist Democrats in those five former Confederate states to vote for Herbert Hoover and Republicans start ignoring the issues pertaining to African-Americans. They ignore the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which, which, which uh, comes back into power in the 1920s. A lot of that has to do with the movie, The Birth of a Nation, which uh, debuted February 8th, 1915. And the movie, The Birth of a Nation showed the Klan as being the heroes. The, in many newspaper ads that 
advertise the movie The Birth of a Nation, uh, the Ku Klux Klan would take out recruiting ads next to those ads. So you have a resurgence in the power uh, of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, and you have Republicans starting to ignore the needs and concerns of African Americans and push us out of the Republican Party. This is known as the Lily White Movement of 1928. And this, so we start slowly going over to the Democratic Party because we see them as more receptive to our issues. Um, and then Roosevelt, uh, uh, Delano Roosevelt, and um, 1947 presidential election, 1947, 1948, Democrats have a pro-civil rights agenda. At the same time, you have uh, uh, Strom Thurmond of uh, South Carolina, who's a Dixiecrat, Southern segregationist Democrat. He runs uh, a, a, as a Dixiecrat for president. He loses. Strom Thurmond is going to leave the Democratic Party and go over to the Republican Party. So uh, you, you're going to start, you, you have this party realignment that takes place where a lot, uh, as more African-Americans go over to the Democratic Party, um, and you have uh, uh, civil rights acts that are passed even before the 1964 Civil Rights Act. You're going to have a lot of these Southern segregationist Democrats leave the Democratic Party and go over to the Republican Party. Then you have 1964, where um, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona runs for president against uh, Lyndon Johnson. And Barry Goldwater runs on an anti-civil rights platform. OK, Lyndon Johnson wins. He, he, he wins. So Johnson becomes president after uh, Kennedy is assassinated in November 1963. Uh, so then so then Johnson uh, uh, runs for uh, he, he finishes Kennedy's term and then he runs for uh, election in 1964. OK, then in 1968, uh, Lyndon Johnson does not run for reelection. And Richard Nixon, who ran against Kennedy in 1960 and lost, Richard Nixon runs for president. Nixon runs on a campaign of law and order, and he runs on a campaign as a backlash of, of white people, white Republicans especially, against the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the rebellions that are taking place all across the country in, in, in inner cities like the Detroit Rebellion 1967 in Newark, New Jersey, things like this. He runs in opposition of affirmative action. OK, and he runs on a platform of law and order, which is another type of Southern strategy to appeal to white people and basically and basically say, I will protect you from those people. I will protect you from those people. And then he becomes president. And then Donald Trump ran on a similar platform in 2016 because part of Donald Trump's platform was law and order, which was a throwback to Richard Nixon, 1968. Okay, so when we look at this right here, what happened at the Mississippi State Convention of 1890, because all this history is connected, okay? This is why you have to understand the chronology of history and cause and effect and how these different events are connected. The, the Mississippi State Convention's president, Solomon Saladin Calhoun, a white county judge, put the voting issue bluntly. He said, let's tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. He said, we came here to exclude the Negro. We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. So delegates at the 1890 Mississippi State Convention eventually adopted a literacy test and poll tax 
geared to suppress the African-American vote in the state that had a black majority. The African-Americans were the majority of the population in the state of Mississippi as a result of slavery. Today, the state of Mississippi has the, has the largest percentage of African-Americans in the country at 39% of the state. The Mississippi plan became the model throughout the South, part of a raft of racially oppressive Jim Crow laws that ended Reconstruction. What Florida is doing is continuing the conflicts in the fight for Reconstruction. But what Republicans are doing now in Florida and Georgia and Texas, they're trying to, they're trying to, to settle this and win the war for good. They're playing for keeps. We don't understand most of this history. So we don't see this stuff coming. I'm a historian. I understand. I'm, I know what I'm looking at when I see it because I've seen it before. Okay, let's continue. Let's go back to the Brennan Center for Justice. Felony disenfranchisement in, in the 1868 Florida State Constitution was part of a larger effort to prevent a quote-unquote Negro legislature. Post-emancipation, after slavery ends in uh, basically 1865, you have the 13th Amendment ratified December 6, 1865, which legally ends slavery, not the Emancipation Proclamation. That, that, that did not free the slaves. Okay, go to archives.gov and read it or uh, go to loc.gov because it basically stated that the territories in rebellion, their slaves would be freed by uh, January 1st, 1863, if they did not come back into uh, come back into the union. But the territories in rebellion, they separate from the union, set up their own government, set up the Confederate States of America in uh, 1861, and you no longer have any authority over them. And then it, it also had exceptions for the border states, Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, and Delaware. And it said that they were exempt so they could keep their slaves. Maryland did not abolish slavery until November 1st, 1864, because they put it on the ballot. That's almost two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. Okay. Uh, now, post-emancipation, legislators in Florida feared, feared that freedmen, that black freedmen, that former slaves, who then constituted 48% of the state's population, they feared that they would take over state and local government. I'll be damned. Isn't that the fear that they have today? Isn't that the fear that, oh, what happens when these Negroes take over the state legislature? What happens when, 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 when they have dominance in the House of Representatives and the Senate? The same fear that Florida had in 1868 is the same fear that they have today in 2022. The same measures that they used in 1868, that's the same goddamn thing they're doing today. We don't have enough sense to understand history to see this stuff when it's coming so we can stop it. Post-emancipation legislators in Florida feared that black freedmen who then constituted 48% of the state's population would take over state and local government. The 1868 Florida State uh, Constitution contained several provisions to prevent this from happening. So you mean they used the law to oppress African-Americans? This is why I say we have to understand the law. We need to understand the law better than they, they, better than they understand the law. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. 
Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. And I know, I know people mean well when they say, um, when they tell you know African Americans to vote, to uh, exercise your right to vote, things like this. I know they mean well when they say that. But let me be very clear. You don't vote for exercise. If you want to exercise, take your take your ass to the gym. Go work out. Get a home gym like I have. You don't exercise. You, you don't vote for exercise. You vote for power. When you go read what happened and study this history and the laws they put in place, white people don't vote for no exercise. They vote for power. This is what we have to understand. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. This don't have nothing to do with exercise. So in 1868, the Florida State Constitution, it contained federal uh, several provisions to prevent a Negro legislature from taking place, to prevent African Americans from taking over state and local government. For example, the 1868 Florida State Constitution established a state legislative appointment scheme, a state legislative appointment scheme that inflated the representation of predominantly white counties while deflating the representation of predominantly black counties. Oh, you mean like redrawing district lines? You mean like in Texas? where over the past 10 years, the increase in population has been non-white people, but the Texas state legislature controlled by Republicans, they found a way to, to create two white districts. You mean something like that? You mean like in Louisiana, where they're trying to redefine what black is to suppress the African-American vote and reduce how many, and reduce how many people can vote? Like in Louisiana, when they're trying to redraw these district lines? The Florida State Constitution of 1868 also gave the governor the power to appoint local officials, thereby, thereby preventing local black majorities from electing their own leaders. Also, now that slavery ends and they're voting and they're in these uh, cities that have a majority African-American population, now you want to take the power away from the local from, from local uh, at the local level and send it to the governor at the state level to then appoint local officials over African Americans to prevent it, to prevent local African Americans, local black majorities from electing their own leaders. One legislator in Florida wrote that this and other such provisions were designed to prevent a Negro legislature were designed to prevent a Negro legislature. Felony disenfranchisement was yet another mechanism intended to suppress the political power of newly freed slaves. Now, it didn't say nothing about exercise. It didn't say they were trying to keep African-Americans from exercise. This is about power, period. If you don't understand that, I don't know what the hell to tell you. 
Now, Florida's expansion of criminal disenfranchisement during Reconstruction reflected a regional and even na nationwide trend. It wasn't just Florida. Studies show that many states, especially those in the former Confederacy, passed restrictive felony disenfranchisement laws in the period directly following the extension of voting rights to freedmen. So right in that era, even we see this even before 1870, shortly before 1870, we see this 1868 here in Florida. But right around that time, right in that era during Reconstruction, we see different states having felony disenfranchisement laws and is directly targeting African-Americans to suppress our vote. Felony disenfranchisement was enacted in states with high black incarceration rates states with high black incarceration rates as a way to reduce the effect of black suffrage of, of african-american voting rights okay and what you're going to see in these different states like florida they're going to expand uh what they're going to expand the different types of crimes that get classified as felonies and they're going to target certain crimes that were believed to be committed more by African-Americans to get more of us caught up in that uh, prison system so we could not vote to reduce the number of African-Americans who could actually vote. Now, if we look at the reenactment of the felony disenfranchisement provision in 1968, the reenactment of the felony disenfranchisement provision in 1968. When the Florida State Constitution was revised in 1968, members of the revision committee articulated no independent non-discriminatory reason for keeping permanent felony disenfranchisement in the constitution they didn't come up with a good they couldn't articulate a really good reason to keep it in there when the florida state constitution was revised in 1968 members of the revision committee articulated no independent non-discriminatory reason for keeping, for keeping permanent felony disenfranchisement in the state constitution. The public record contains no evidence, the public record contains no evidence that the members of the Constitutional Revision Commission, CRC, Constitutional Re Revision Commission, or the state legislature ever had any legitimate reason for maintaining the voting ban on people with felony convictions. Even though years of defending the provision in litigation, the state of Florida never established or even articulated an independent rationale for reenacting the provision in 1968. The 1968 revision 
to the Florida State Constitution occurred during a period of intense racial contention and was led by legislators who had shown contempt for several civil rights causes. Once again, racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. And this is about power. Racism deals with a power structure. The, the 1960s was a period of racial unrest in Florida and conflicts over the implementation of civil rights reforms often led to violence. For instance, in 1963, 1964, a civil rights campaign led uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in uh, St. Augustine, Florida led to racial violence throughout the region. And four years later, race riots erupted in seven cities in uh, the state of Florida, uh, seven cities across the state of Florida, attempts to stifle the voting power of African-Americans in Florida also continued throughout the decade. CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, which was a prominent civil rights organization, encountered many difficulties while running its uh, 1964 uh, voting rights drive, voter, voter registration drives, several members of the organization were uh, arrested while registering African-American voters and one election registrar explicitly opposed the group's activities. We look at um, what's known as um, Axe Handle Saturday, August 27th, 1960, okay, uh, Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida. There's a good article from um, the Washington Post that deals with this. You had about 200 uh, Klansmen who had Axe Handles and baseball bats and they used this to beat civil rights activists who were holding sit-ins at lunch counters. This is known as Axe Handle Saturday. How many people have, have never heard of Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida? If we look at this here, let's go to this article here from the Washington Post. We've talked about it before here on the show. Axe Handle Saturday. The Klan's vicious attack on black protesters in Florida 60 years ago. This article by Sidney Trent, August 27, 2020. This is a picture of one of the civil rights activists who, who was beaten. By, by, by these cowards. A Jacksonville police officer stands with Charles Griffin after he was attacked on August 27, 1960 during the lunch counter protest by civil rights activists in Florida. This article courtesy Florida Historical Society, okay? 
is a civil rights activist, Charles Griffin, okay, beaten by these, by, by these white supremacists. The Florida Klansmen, the Florida Klansmen had armed themselves with candles. It was August 27th, 1960, a year of lunch counter uh, sit-ins by civil rights activists. The opening salvo had been fired on February 1st, 1960, when four African-American college students sat down at a whites-only lunch counter inside the F.W. Woolworth uh, Five and Dime store in Greensboro, North Carolina. By spring, sit-in campaigns led by young African-Americans had been organized in cities all over the South, including Lexington, Kentucky, Little Rock, Arkansas, Baltimore, Maryland, Richmond, Virginia, and Nashville, Tennessee. Surprised white onlookers spat and spewed racial epithets at the demonstrators and sometimes physically attacked them. But, a but as spring blossomed into summer, white supremacists farther south, having watched the protests achieve success elsewhere, switched to high alert, switched to high alert. So when young African-Americans began staging sit-ins at a whites-only Woolworth uh, lunch counter in downtown Jacksonville, Florida, that summer, 1960, the Ku Klux Klan organized. On the morning of what has become notoriously known as Axe Handle Saturday, more than 200 white cowards, 200 white men, Ku Klux Klan members, cowards, white supremacists, wielding wooden axe handles, launched a vicious attack on African-American protesters and passerbys. Passers-by, those walking by. Before pulling the plug on an in-person convention in Jacksonville, Florida, punk-ass Donald Trump, when he was president, was scheduled to speak there on the 60th anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday, angering local activists. Now he will accept the nomination uh, for the Republican Party in the speech from the from the White House. So this was back then. Uh, when, when this took place, okay? But he was going to accept the nomination on the sixth, he was going to go to Jacksonville, Florida and accept the nomination from the White Nationalist Party on the 60th anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday. In 1960, the Ku Klux Klan attack in Florida signaled a sharp turn in the cascading sit-in movement from spontaneous acts of racism to coordinated white supremacist brutality, according to Stanford University history professor Claiborne Carson. Quote, as the protesters began to achieve some success in the upper South, then in the deep South areas, resistance became more intense, said Professor Claiborne Carson, who was also founding director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. And they have all that information online. Uh, you, I do research there, so you, you can check that out uh, online, Stanford University's uh, Martin Luther King uh, uh, Research and Education Center. The lunch counter sit-ins that spring had inspired members of the Youth Council of the Jacksonville NAACP to launch nonviolent direct action of their own. Now, at this time in... Um, uh, right around this time is going to be April, May, 1960. That SNCC is going to be formed. Also, Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. Right around April, May, 1960, SNCC is going to be formed as well. And SNCC comes out of Southern Christian Leadership Conference. 
Okay, read 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 the rest of this article here. Uh, this deals with Axe Handle Saturday, August 27th, 1960. Uh, the Klan's vicious attack on black protesters in Florida 60 years ago. Okay, now if we if we go back to this piece from the Brennan Center for Justice dealing with um where's this here? Okay, we go back to this piece from the Brennan Center for Justice dealing with the some of the history of Florida's disenfranchisement uh law written into their state constitution in um, 1868. Hold on, let's see. Here. Let's close this one out. This is what I want right here. All right. So, uh, core Congress of Racial Equality, a prominent civil rights organization, encountered many difficulties. Uh, while running its 1964 registration drives, several members of the organization were arrested while uh, registering African-American voters and one election registrar explicitly opposed the group's activities. Eight of the 37 uh, members of the CRC were also members of the Johnson's uh, of the Johns Committee a governmental uh, commission charged with investigating potentially subversive activities. The Johns Committee uh, spent much of uh, the 1950s and 60s investigating civil rights organizations, including the NAACP and CORE. George Stallings, head of the suffrage and election subcommittee that recommended retaining uh, recommended retaining permanent disenfranchisement to the CRC and Bill Young, a member of the same subcommittee were members of uh, the Johns members of the Johns committee during the core investigations. Stallings in particular had a long record as a segregationist. Stall George Stallings in particular had a long record as a segregationist. He had openly declared that if segregation could not be avoided, all public schools should be set, shut down. Okay, if segregation could not be avoided, all public schools should be sit, shut down. Now, like literacy tests and poll taxes, and poll taxes, you had to pay a tax to register to vote. Like literacy tests and poll taxes, felony disenfranchisement was used to bar newly freed slaves from the voting polls. The drafters of the uh, Florida State Constitution of 1868 consciously conceived consciously conceived of various mechanisms to uh, protect the longstanding white monopoly on political power, to protect the longstanding white monopoly on political power 
in the state of Florida. And now notice they didn't say to protect the longstanding uh, white exercise. They're telling you this is about power. This is not about exercise. That's why we need to stop telling people go vote to exercise your right to vote. No, this is you vote for power. You vote for policies that are beneficial to you, your people, your community, etc. You don't vote for exercise. In 1968, the provision was enacted. But the Constitutional Revision Committee articulated uh, no legitimate non-discriminatory reason for retaining permanent felony disenfranchisement. Today, felony disenfranchisement continues to achieve its original purpose by disenfranchising blacks at disproportionate rates. Okay, so when I hear black conservatives say slavery was a long time ago, uh, all the slaves are dead, things like this, they don't talk about the legacy of slavery. They don't talk about the legacy of the Civil War, the legacy of Reconstruction, how we're still feeling the repercussions of what happened over 150, uh, 150 years ago, 154 years ago. Today, Felony disenfranchisement continues to achieve its original purpose by disenfranchising blacks at disproportionate rates. We must act now to remove this vestige of Florida's long history of racial discrimination and, and voter suppression. Okay, so check this out at the Brennan, Brennan Center for Justice. This is a history of Florida's felony disenfranchisement provision. History of Florida's felony disenfranchisement provision. All this deals with history. And those who are ignorant of history are destined to repeat it. Okay, um, we're going to continue here in just a second. Also, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. And so let's keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, uh, pay some of the bills, etc. You can, if you like this type of history, uh, you can register for the online history classes that I teach on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Visit our new website, uh, theafricanhistorynetwork.com theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Um, so when you go to it, you, you'll see the information about the uh, radio show as well, how to listen to the um, audio podcast. You have information there for uh, Cash App and PayPal also here. But you scroll down, and um, we have the information for the class. On Tuesdays, I teach H. E. Kemet, one of the original names for Egypt, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Our next class is going to be Wednesday, October 26, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Click right here to register here. Uh, we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded, so you can watch them on demand. Even uh, after the class is over with, a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. Okay. Uh, then on, so that class is on sale $80, regularly $130. 
Then on Tuesdays, I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Next class is Tuesday, October 25th, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Class is the same, same format, same calls. Uh, we start in about 1800, year 1800. We look at the 1800 U.S. Census. We deal with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 and the Haitian Revolution as well, because those two um, incidents are uh, events are related. OK, and we go throughout and look at history chronologically to see what leads to the Civil War taking place. Um, and we look at the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction, Mexican-American War, Texas Revolution, 1836, Mexican-American War, 1846, 1848, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, Compromise of 1850, Missouri Compromise of 1820, uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, 1854. We look at what leads to the Civil War taking place. Then we look at the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow era, Great Migration, World War I, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. To look at this history chronologically to understand what happened after slavery ended, how we got to where we are today, what were the laws and policies put in place to put us in the predicament we are today to understand where we need to go from here to understand the laws and policies that need to be put in place to address today's conditions, you have to understand the laws and policies that were put in place to create the conditions in the first place that got us here. This is why history is so important. One of the reasons, and we know that African history and culture gives us our foundation, gives us our values, our interests, and our principles, gives us a cultural paradigm that we see reality through, gives us, uh, and this influences our economic empowerment and political empowerment. We have a bundle pack. You, you, you can register for both classes for only $130. That's an over $300 value because it's going to be uh, there's bonus content that you're going to get from me, bonus lectures, things like that in digital uh, format. So you can register right now at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email us right through the website or email us at ahnshow at theafricanhistorynetwork.com. But uh, you can email us right through the website. Just click on contact uh, the African History Network. You get a 50% discount on uh, the bundle pack. Okay, let's continue. We have the um, information for the class here on the thread of the broadcast as well. But I'll post the uh, I'll post the information right here. Okay, yeah, register here for the courses. Okay, let's continue. Now, there's a uh, piece I want to look at quickly here, and then I'm going to try to squeeze in this section here, dealing with Louisiana. Uh, there's a good article from Time Magazine. Uh, it's a good article from Time Magazine that deals with uh, Florida's dark history behind their disenfranchisement law. Uh, this piece right here, as Florida restores ex-felons right to vote. Here's the dark history behind their disenfranchisement. As Florida restores ex-felons right to vote. Here's the dark history behind their disenfranchisement. Uh, this is an article from November 7th, 2018 by Olivia B. Waxman. I'm just going to highlight a couple things here in the article. They talk about Amendment 4. Okay, which we talked about already, and we and uh, shared the clip from Roland Martin and Filter, the interview with Desmond Mead. 
Among the several historic results to come out of the 2018 midterm elections, uh, November 2018 midterm elections, one of the one was the result of voters uh, voting to give others the right to do so. They approved a ballot initiative known as Amendment 4 or the Voter Restoration Amendment, which will amend Florida's constitution to reenfranchise some ex-felons who had permanently lost the right to vote, who have permanently lost the right to vote. Uh, upon a uh, felony conviction. Now, in the new system, they will get uh, the right back once they complete all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation, according to the text of Amendment 4, rather than losing it forever. And in the state of Florida and three other states, when you lost your right to vote because of felony conviction, it was forever, okay? The amendment excludes people convicted of murder and felony sex crimes. Amendment four excludes people convicted of, Merlin, of murder and felony sex crimes. More than 1 million people will be affected. Okay, so it's like uh, about, uh, yeah, more than 1 million people will be affected. Enough newly enfranchised voters to, in theory, decide the 2020 presidential election. Florida has been an exception in in its in its strictness on felony enfranchisement quote florida was one of four states whose constitution permanently disenfranchised citizens with past felony convictions one of four states whose state constitution permanently permanently disenfranchised citizens with felony convictions and granted the governor the authority to restore voting rights, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. Quote, the others are Kentucky and Iowa, where lifetime bans remain in place, and Virginia, where the governor has promised to restore voting rights on a rolling basis. So that's, that was governor at the time, Governor Terry McAuliffe, of Virginia, and he did that. He did that. Uh, uh, he had to do that on an individual basis to restore voting rights to uh, ex-offenders. But the question of whether ex-felons should be able to vote is much bigger than just a couple of states. And the history goes all the way back to the mid-19th century, the mid-1800s. After Tuesday's, after the November 2018 vote, Tuesday, November 18 vote, Time Magazine, Time Magazine spoke to historian Pippa Holloway, P-I-P-P-A, Pippa Holloway, author of the book Living in Infamy, Felon Disenfranchisement and the History of American Citizenship, Living in Infamy, Felon, uh, Felon Disenfranchisement and the History of American Citizenship. They, uh, they spoke with Pippa about the origins of the idea of felony disenfranchisement and what to know about how things have changed. So they asked the question, when did the disenfranchisement of felons and ex-felons first take shape as an idea? 
ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, these laws were common in uh, ancient uh, democracies and then also utilized in early modern Europe and early modern England. Okay, these laws were common in ancient democracies and then also utilized in early modern Europe and early modern England. There actually wasn't a lot of voting back then, but if you had the right to vote, you might lose it following conviction of a crime. And it would affect you in other ways, like your ability to testify in court. So Time Magazine asked the question, the framers of the U.S. Constitution cherry-picked from English and European laws to create our system of government. Any idea how the framers viewed this is issue of felony disenfranchisement? So suffrage was, or voting rights, was really left up to the states, something we're still seeing the implications of today. Uh, the 1830s is the decade when uh, felon disenfranchisement starts happening, the 1830s. When states that already had constitutions started putting those provisions in there, and when states and territories like Florida uh, that were writing constitutions started including them. The 1838 Florida Territorial Constitution, now this is before the 1868 Florida State Constitution, this is the 1838 Florida Territorial Constitution, was the first time it had a provision that barred from suffrage all persons, quote, convicted of bribery, perjury, or other infamous crimes, unquote. So Time Magazine asked the question, why were states passing felon disenfranchisement provisions in the 1830s? What was going on in history back in the 1830s? So Pippa responds, they're thinking a lot more about voting in the 1830s because we lose the property qualifications. We lose the property qualifications. Uh, so voting becomes more widespread. Prior to that, it had only been for property owners. Voting had only been for property owners. In the 1820s, uh, there's a little more interest. Quote, do we really mean all white men? End quote. Uh, but the point I really want to emphasize is that, is that this is not controversial. In fact, in a lot of communities, if someone murdered someone, they probably would not let you vote. In many cases, it was probably a common practice that was getting codified in the 1830s. They did, they, they did this in England. They did this in the colonies. So it's not in an exciting story so far. The key turning point, okay, now pay attention to this right here. The key turning point is in the Civil War. After the Civil War, African-Americans are given the right to vote, African-American men, specifically 15th Amendment, are given the right to vote. And in the first election after the Civil War, 1867-1868 election, that is when Southern states begin tailoring their laws to target African-American voters. So all these, so all these 
people out here, the, the GOP, the white conservatives, the black conservatives to say, oh, this was a long time ago, get over slavery. Because when I was on the Tammy Mack show and probably on next Sunday's show, I'll share some excerpts from the Tammy Mack business of being black show when I was on with these two black conservatives who, for the most part, had no clue what the hell they were talking about and didn't understand history. And 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 the 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 main topic of the show was: Is it time to get over slavery? Is it time for black people to get over slavery? And my argument was: No, it's not time to get over slavery. It's time for America to deal with the real history of slavery and the legacy of slavery. That's what it's time for. Because we're still feeling the effects today. So you have black conservatives who will say, oh, all the slaves are dead. And you had the civil rights after 64, voting rights after 65. Yeah, but you also had Shelby County versus Holder, 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case, which weakened Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. The reason why you needed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in the pre-clearance, okay, was because of what happened in Mississippi in 1890 and South Carolina in 1895 and Louisiana 1898 and Alabama in 1901, where they rewrote their state constitutions to impose poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, etc. We're still feeling the effects of this today. And Florida is a perfect example. In the domestic terrorism that Governor Ron DeSatan is imposing upon African Americans in Florida with his, with his uh, election integrity task force is an example of this and a continuation of what happened in 1868 in Florida. So Time Magazine asked the question, how so was this specific language that they were using? So, um, so Pippa responds. Um, uh, Pippa Holloway uh, responds in terms of specific language. Infamous, the word infamous became a code word for degraded people, quote unquote, infamous criminals, infamous criminals. The second way to answer your question is that around 1868, they started the process of targeting African-Americans with these laws. In the South, in the early 1870s, they lowered the bar for the, for the kind of crime that you lose your right for so that people who commit minor crimes are also are also start will also start losing the right to vote. So they expand. We saw this in Florida, 1865, then 1868. They expand the types of crimes that get classified as felonies, and they start to target crimes that they think. African-Americans are more likely to commit to then increase the number of us who lose our right to vote. They lower the bar for the kind of crime that you lose the right to vote for so that people who commit minor crimes are also, also start losing the right to vote. In all of these laws we've been talking about up until now, you'd only lose uh, the right to vote for a very serious crime. So Time Magazine asked the question, what are examples of minor crimes that could cost a person the right to vote? Any theft of any kind of livestock and minor theft. The classic one they talk about is chicken theft, chicken theft. 
you still a chicken, you lose the right to vote. You still a chicken, you lose the right to vote. So I don't know if they thought that African-Americans were more disposed uh, to eating chicken, therefore stealing chicken. You still a chicken, you lose the right to vote. A man in Florida lost the right to vote because he stole six fish, not 6,000, six fish, okay? Uh, there was someone in Florida who actually stole some oranges. This is what happens in Florida and many other states, especially Southern states, former Confederate states. There is an 1880s Florida Supreme Court case in which someone loses the right to vote for larceny of 10 cents. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten cents, a dime, ten cents. And it was determined that a conviction for petty larceny does disqualify a person for voting in this state. In Florida in the 1870s, before elections, they go round up all the black people in certain counties and put them on trial for minor larceny. So they could not vote. In the 1870s in Florida and across the South, this is a way to take the right to vote away from newly enfranchised African-American voters. So Time Magazine asked the question, what about the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution granting African-American men the right to vote? Now, the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870 and ironically, as Congress is debating it, some members basically say, oh, my God, they're doing this crazy stuff in the South where they're using disenfranchisement for uh, crime to stop black people from voting. And some people said, oh, that's terrible. But the majority of Congress said that's OK. People who are criminals shouldn't get shouldn't get the right to vote. So. Time Magazine asked the question, what's the next key milestone? What's the next key milestone? So Pippa says, let's jump to the 1960s and talk about the fact that in the 1960s and 1970s, as well into and well into the 1980s, during the crack cocaine epidemic, we began to see mass incarceration. Okay. Now, mass incarceration does not start with the 1994 crime bill, as some people mistakenly think. I don't know. I guess that, that comes from not understanding history. Mass incarceration goes back to uh, uh, June 17th, 1971, when Richard Nixon declares his war on drugs. And we start seeing an increase in the prison population going back to the early 1970s, because in uh, right around 1970, the, the prison population is about 300,000 in the country. And, and the U.S. prison population quadruples from 1970 to 1993, it goes from 300,000 in 1970 to about 1 1.3 million in 1993. This is before the crime bill is signed in 19, is September 13th, 1994. This goes back to Richard Nixon's war on drugs that very few people talk about because we don't understand history. That he declared June 17th, 1971. We talked about this um, a couple weeks ago when we dealt with President Biden 
uh, doing the executive order to uh, uh, expunge uh, marijuana convictions, okay? The provisional, uh, the, the, the marijuana convictions, okay? And that, and, and, and that goes back to uh, Richard Nixon's war on drugs, but also it goes back to Harry J. Anslinger, 1937, who was the first chairman of the National, of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who campaigned to make marijuana illegal. And in his congressional testimony, he lied and said that white women crave black men sexually when white women are high on marijuana. Go watch the show from two weeks ago. We got deep into this. That's Harry J. Anslinger, the same Harry J. Anslinger who persecuted Billie Holiday. So let's jump to the 1960s and talk about the fact that in the 1960s and 70s and well into the 1980s during the crack cocaine epidemic, we began to see mass incarceration. More and more people are convicted of felony crimes, particularly drug crimes. The gigantic rise in incarceration, most historians would probably say, it was a response to the rise of the civil rights movement. So this is, keep in mind, this is Richard Nixon who declares his war on drugs in front of Congress Okay, and this is Richard Nixon, who in 1968 ran on the platform of law and order. Okay, and law and order basically means uh, protect white people and lock up African Americans. And he runs as the backlash of the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement and the rebellions taking place at the time, etc. So let's go back to the piece from Time Magazine. All of this is predicated on a rather unfair judicial process that privileges privileges people with money over people who don't have money. There's a reason there are more African-Americans incarcerated in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s than white people. And it's not that, and it's not that uh, they were committing more crimes. It's because they have a poor quality representation. They have a, a poor quality of representation. It's because African-Americans were giving more severe sentences. In early 1970s, the uh, state and federal, in, in the early 1970s, the state and federal prison population was around 200,000 uh, by uh, 20, in 1970s, really about 300,000 total. Okay, but they put it at around 200,000, really about 300,000, about 1970, 71. By 2016, it's more than 1.4 million. Today, about 6.1 million people nationwide can't vote because of a felony conviction. So they asked the question, what an event that changed people's view on the issue of ex-felon disenfranchisement? Was there an event that changed people's view on the issue of ex-felon disenfranchisement? Definitely, definitely the Florida recount in the year 2000 alerted, so uh, Al Gore, George W. Bush, presidential election. The, the Florida recount in, once again, the state of Florida, the year 2000 alerted more people to this issue than ever before. Prior to the 2000 presidential election, there was a report 
that Florida, that the Florida Secretary of State hired a private company and asked, asked them to make sure there were no ex-felons who were still on the voter rolls. And they did a really inexact name match. So they threw a bunch of people off the voter rolls that should not have been thrown off the voter rolls. This is right before the 2020 presidential election. In the majority of American states, once you've done, once you're done with prison and or probation, you get your voting rights back. You've done your time. You've paid the price. Welcome back. In the past 10 to 20 years, most states have gone to that. Florida has persisted with exactly the opposite. In Florida, many ex-offenders had to go before this probation and parole board, which would ask, ask them all these weird personal questions, like, have you ever had a parking ticket? And then they wouldn't give them their vote back because of a parking ticket. Are there, the question was asked, are there myths about the issue of ex-felon voting rights, you find yourself debunking all the time. One misconception is that ex-offenders are not interested in voting. That's a huge one. In fact, people who have been incarcerated vote at it and at exactly the same rate as other members of their demographic. And actually my historical research shows people in the late 19th century scraped together money to pay their fines so they could vote. Okay, so read the rest of this here um, from Time Magazine. Uh, this piece asked, as Florida restores ex-felons right to vote, here's the dark history behind their disenfranchisement. This is by Olivia B. Waxman, November 7th, 2018, for Time Magazine. All right, now, for the sake of time, I want to go to um, I want to go to this piece here. Which one is it? It is this article here. Now, there's a good. Uh, a good piece from the New York Times by Brent Staples, The Racist Origins of Felon Disenfranchisement. You can check that out also. From November 18th, 2018, uh, 2014, November 18th, 2014. Um, okay, Editorial Observer, The Racist Origins of Felon Disenfranchisement for the New York Times. 
if I remember correctly, he's a member at the time. He was a member of the uh, New York Times editorial board. Okay, so you can read this one also. Uh, on page one, there is uh, just something I want to highlight here. They also found that the larger the state's black population, the more likely the state was to pass pass uh, the more the most stringent laws that permanently denied people convicted of crimes the right to vote. Okay. Let's see, let me back up a second here. Uh, the history of disenfranchisement was laid out in a fascinating 2003 study by Angela Behrens, B-E-H-R-E-N-S, Christopher Ugin, or Ugin, U-G-G-E-N, and Jeff Manza, M-A-N-Z-A. They found that state felony bans exploded in number during the late 1860s and 1870s, they found that state felony bans on voting exploded in number during the late 1860s and 1870s, particularly in the wake of the 15th Amendment, which ostensibly guaranteed African-Americans the right to vote, basically African-American men at that time. They also found that the larger the state's African-American population, the more likely the state was to pass the most stringent laws that permanently denied people convicted of crimes the right to vote. These bans were subsequently strengthened as the Jim Crow era began to take hold. The white supremacists who championed such measures were very clear on their reasons. In 1894, a white South Carolina Newspaper argued that voting laws needed to be amended, lest whites be swept away at the polls by the black vote. Lest whites be swept away at the polls by the black vote. In 1901 in, in Alabama, Alabama uh, uh, amends their state constitution to expand disenfranchisement to all crimes involving moral turpitude. This is in the Alabama State Constitution of 1901, okay? It, it expanded disenfranchisement to all crimes involving moral turpitude. Moral turpitude is a, a vague term that was applied to misdemeanors and even acts not punishable by law. The president of the Constitutional Convention argued that manipulating the ballot to exclude blacks was warranted because African-Americans were inferior to whites and because the state needed to avert the, quote, menace of Negro domination. The state of Alabama was trying to avert the, quote, unquote, menace of Negro domination. The state of Florida was trying to avoid a Negro legislature because African-Americans were 48 percent of the state of, popul state of Florida in 1868. The official introduced the new provision at the Constitution and said the crime of wife beating alone would disqualify 60% of the Negroes. The crime of wife beating alone 
would disqualify 60% of the Negroes, quote unquote. This did not mean that only African-American men committed spousal abuse. It meant that whites were less likely to be prosecuted for this and several other offenses that could lead to this, that could lead to felony disenfranchisement. Alabama today has one of the highest rates of felony disenfranchisement in the nation. An estimated 7.2% of its citizens and 15% of African Americans have lost the right to vote in the state of Alabama. Now, the disenfranchisement laws flourished in both northern and southern states where large African-American populations were cast in the role of eternal outsiders, the role of eternal outsiders, and proposals for allowing former felons to vote were often cast as, as heralding the end of civilization. They were going crazy, just like today, and a lot of these Republicans are going crazy over African-Americans voting and trying to find, find ways to suppress the vote. And they're running on the campaign of the big lie. The things like this, was a, which is another voter suppression tactic, the big lie, because then um, voter suppression laws are being voted on and put in place based upon the big lie. The debate, now this is extremely important here because this is going to lead to the next article that I'm going to show you. The debate looks a lot different in Maine and Vermont. The debate over felony disenfranchisement looks a lot different in Maine and Vermont. States where there are no black populations to speak of and racial demonization does not come into the equation. Imagine that. So all these black Republicans running around and, and white conservatives running around talking about uh, put slavery behind you and, and racism is over with and you got equal opportunity today and all this nonsense. They don't want to deal with laws like this. They don't want to deal with this reality which is a legacy of slavery. Both states, Maine and Vermont, place no restrictions on voting rights for people convicted of even serious crimes and have steadfastly resisted efforts to revoke a system that allows inmates to vote from prison. Why is this? because there's a lack of a black population in Maine and Vermont, and they would be hurting white people if they had felony disenfranchisement laws in Maine and Vermont. You realize in Vermont that you can vote from prison? In, 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 in the state of Vermont, you don't lose your right to vote if you are convicted and you can actually vote from prison in the state of Vermont? This, this came about in the in the 2020 presidential election because Bernie Sanders talked about this. And Bernie Sanders is Bernie Sanders is from Vermont. And he was saying that you should not lose your right to vote because you're convicted of a crime and things like this, and you should be able to vote from prison, and things like this. Because in the state of Vermont, you can. Because there's no black people in Vermont, or very few. 
The debate looks a lot different in Maine and Vermont, states where there are no black populations to speak of and racial demonization does not come into the equation. But states place no restrict, both, both states place no restrictions on voting rights for people convicted of even serious crimes and they have steadfastly resisted efforts to revoke a system that allows inmates to vote from prison. Maine residents, M-A-I-N-E, residents of the state of Maine, vigorously debated the issue last year, uh, 2013, uh, when this article came out in 2014, so when they say last year, it'll be 2013 when the state legislature took up and declined to pass a bill that would have stripped the vote from some inmates whose crimes included murder and other major felonies. Families of murder victims argued that the killers had, had denied their loved ones the right to vote and therefore should suffer the same fate. Because in Maine, like Vermont, Prisoners, convicted of felonies, prisoners can vote from prison. They don't lose their right to vote. Those who opposed the bill made several arguments that the franchise is enshrined in the state constitution and too, and too important to withdraw on a whim, that voting rights keeps inmates connected to civic life and make it easier for them to rejoin society that the notion of restricting rights for people in prison was inconsistent with the values of the state of Maine. Okay, so read the rest of this, uh, read the rest of this article here. Very, very interesting because we see a difference in Maine and Vermont. The racist origins of felony disenfranchisement, uh, New York Times, November 18, 2014, by Brent Staples. Okay, how y'all doing? How y'all like this type of information? Give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like uh, on the broadcast here. Also, if you like this type of information, you support the African History Network. So we definitely need your support. Dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Um, I got a um, invitation a couple of days ago uh, for November 8th, Roland Martin Unfiltered. They're going to do a six-hour broadcast for uh, the election returns, election results. And I've been asked to be a political analyst on that broadcast. So watch out for that. You'll get more information about that as well. I'm... Um, they said I can be either be in studio or do it virtually. Like um, when I do Roland Martin Unfiltered, I'm here in my office and uh, they're there in D.C., but I'm trying to get to D.C. as well. OK, so uh, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show as well, because I, I got to pay for that trip to uh, D.C. And we have the information on the homepage of our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Okay, now this next article right here, this 
deals with Maine and Vermont. This is extremely important because once again, racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy for the purpose of preserving genetic white survival on a planet that's less than 10% European. If we look at this article here from NBC News, most states disenfranchise felons Maine and Vermont allow inmates to vote from prison. How many people knew this before I told you? Most states disenfranchise felons. Maine and Vermont allow inmates to vote from prison. Advocates say the rehabilita rehabilitative effects of letting inmates have a voice is profound. Now, this is from uh, February 24th, 2018. Okay. And, um, okay. So check, check, check this out, but this goes through and deals with how convicted felons can vote from prison in Maine and Vermont. But as the impact of felony disenfranchisement laws grows, along with the skyrocketing incarceration rates, other states are rethinking the rules that, that kept 6.1 million Americans from voting in 2016. Alabama, Maryland, and Wyoming have all recently erased voter uh, voting restrictions for uh, released felons, while Florida organizers have put a constitutional amendment on November's uh, ballot to November 2018 ballot to give most ex-offenders their voting rights back after completing their sentences, including for anyone on probation or parole. Meanwhile, Maine and Vermont remain unique in preserving voting rights for prisoners, preserving voting rights for prisoners, and serve as a model for states like New Jersey, where Democrats newly in control of all three branches of government propose, uh, plan to propose a bill to stop the disenfranchisement of felons and allow them to vote from behind bars. Okay. Um, all right. So read the, um, read the rest of this article. Most states disenfranchise felons, Maine and Vermont allow inmates to vote from prison. This is NBCnews.com. That is from February 26, 2018 by Jane Tim, T-I-M-M. -M. Also, there's a, a piece that I read from uh, the Marshall Project on this topic as well. Uh, in just two states, all prisoners can vote. Here's why few do. This deals with Maine and Vermont. Okay, uh, let's see here. 
It actually talks about Bernie Sanders. In just two states, all prisoners can vote. Here's why few do. In Maine and Vermont, low literacy rates and little access to information means many inmates don't exercise their right to uh, cast ballots. Okay, so it, it says um, when Bernie Sanders, now this, this, is, this article is from, um, this is from June 11th, 2019, June 11th, 2019. So this is during the 2020 presidential election. When Senator Bernie Sanders championed voting rights for prisoners during a CNN town hall, he spotlighted an intensifying national debate about why going to prison means losing the right to vote. And this goes back largely to slavery, well, after slavery, right, the Reconstruction era, targeting African-Americans. In only two states, Maine and Vermont, all prisoners are eligible to vote. However, some prisoners in Mississippi, Alaska, and Alabama can vote while incarcerated depending on their convictions. Senator Bernie Sanders is the sole presidential candidate in the 2020 presidential race. The sole presidential candidate to support the idea of prisoners voting regardless of their crimes. His stance may reflect the reality that his home state of Vermont and its neighbor Maine have long established procedures and general public acceptance of people voting from behind bars. The idea is percolating in other states, however. In June of 2019, six of the 13 council members in Washington, D.C. endorsed legislation that will let the city's prisoners vote, legislators in Massachusetts, Hawaii, New Mexico, and Virginia introduced measures to allow prisoners to vote earlier this year, 2019. None succeeded, none succeeded, but several other states are making it easier for people to vote once they leave prison. In May, 2019, Nevada's governor signed a bill that automatically restores voting rights for parolees, and last year's 2018, uh, uh, voters in Florida re-enfranchised nearly 1.5 million residents with felony convictions, that's Amendment 4, while Louisiana restored voting rights for nearly 36,000 people convicted of felonies. Lawmakers are still considering similar proposals in Connecticut, New Jersey, and Nebraska. Still, some prisoners lose the right to vote while incarcerated. Roughly 15 states automatically restore voting rights upon release, but several states such as Alabama, Mississippi, ban people from voting for life for some crimes. Ban people from, uh, from voting for life for some crimes. Why are Vermont and Maine outliers? What's so different about Vermont and Maine? They share several characteristics that make voting by, by prisoners less controversial. Incarcerated people can only vote by absentee ballot in the, uh, in the place where they last lived. The place where they last lived. They are not counted um, as residents. 
they are not counted as residents uh, of the town that houses a prison, which means their votes can't sway local ele elections if, their vote, if they vote as a block. And unlike many states, the majority of prisoners in Maine and Vermont are white. There you go. That's the reason why. Okay. And unlike many states, the majority of prisoners in Maine and Vermont are white. Whoop, there it is. They said the quiet part out loud. Which defuses the racial dimensions of felony disenfranchisement laws. Whoop, there it is. Um, okay, read the rest of this piece here from the Marshall Project. In just two states, all prisoners can vote. Here's why few do. Okay, let's see here, we got that, and then uh, I'm gonna squeeze in this last part here dealing with, um, I'm gonna squeeze in this clip dealing with Louisiana. We're gonna talk, we're gonna spend a minute on uh, the Okoy massacre of 1920, then we're gonna get out of here. Uh, we have a new uh, bundle pack of my lectures at uh, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. So you can support us with the uh, purchase here, and this is this would be great for your library and, and great information to share, share with your children. African History Awakens the African Mind. Uh, this is a 15 uh, DVD lecture bundle pack, 15 of my lectures. African History Awakens the African Mind uh, from Mental Death. This includes 15 of my lectures, including three of them dealing with uh, the film Black Panther, uh, Black Panther Analysis, African Culture, History, and Afrofuturism. That's almost three-hour presentation. You get my lecture dealing with the history of uh, uh, Black History Month, the origins of Black History Month, breaking the change, why we celebrate Black History Month, Malcolm X 50 years later, why is he still relevant? Uh, the distortion of the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the revolutionary, will not be televised on the tele on the television. Lessons from the film Black Panther, economic guerrilla warfare, political self-defense, and uh, Wakanda the vote. Six principles of political self-defense, how policies and how laws and policies impact the economic conditions of African-Americans. The 13 forms of wealth, keys to economic, uh, keys to entrepreneurship and economic empowerment. Ancient Kemet, the Winter Solstice, and the History of Christmas. The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence, a double lecture I did with uh, Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. Redistributing the Pain, How African Americans Fought Back with Economic Boycotts. That's almost four-hour lecture dealing with uh, documented examples of us using different types of economic withdrawal strategies to fight back against white supremacy and racism. The Light of Ancient Egypt Awakens the African Mind to Economic Empowerment. Um, ancient Africans in America Before Native Americans, Columbus, or Slavery. Great African Women in History, the Mothers of Civilization. A Black Panther Analysis for Children, African Culture and History. I was speaking to about 60 fifth through 12th graders and their teachers at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African, African American History, dealing with the film Black Panther is showing how 
the teachers can take different elements of the film Black Panther to teach uh, African history and African American history uh, to our children. And uh, uh, the 15th uh, title that you get, lecture, African American resistance in the era of Donald Trump, voter suppression reparations, and how elections have consequences. Okay, so this is at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. You can just click uh, on, uh, what is it, store, shop. Click on shop. And we'll put this on the homepage of the website. But this is on sale, $100. It's a $150 value, um, 15 DVD bundle pack from um, myself. These are all lectures that I've done. And we'll post a link here on the thread of the broadcast. We have the orders shipping out um, this week of this bundle pack. And other orders shipping out also, okay? All right, let's switch gears quickly. I want to go to, uh, I, I posted uh, this article from National Public Radio. Posted it uh, about a week or so ago. And this deals with, uh, in Louisiana, who counts as black? Who counts as black? This article here, it got very little response on our fan page, the African History Network. I don't think, I don't think people really understand what's going on. Who counts as black in voting maps? Some GOP state officials want that narrowed. Some GOP state officials want that narrowed. And let me cue up um, Alex Wagner on uh, MSNBC. Alex Wagner tonight dealt with this topic. And I want to cue this up here because I want to squeeze this clip in. This is extremely important. This is taking place right now. Okay, this is a continuation of what happened during Reconstruction, but it's taking place right now. Okay, uh, okay, yeah, there we go. Hold on, I had up. All right. So if we look at this article quickly here, this is from October eighteenth, twenty twenty-two. This is taking place right now. Republican state officials in Louisiana are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on which voters should be categorized as black when testing whether a map of election districts dilutes the political power of black voters. So notice it, it doesn't say, let me zoom in on this. How many people heard about this? See, I posted this on our fan page, the African History Network. Very few people responded. I don't think we understand what the hell is going on here. This is a continuation of the Reconstruction era and the failure of Recon and the fall of Reconstruction and the Jim Crow era. Republican state officials in Louisiana right now today are asking the U.S. Supreme Court, the 6-3 conservative U.S. Supreme Court, to weigh in on which voters should be categorized as black 
when testing whether a map of election districts dilutes the political power of black voters. It don't say nothing about exercise. They're, they don't fear us exercising. They fear African-Americans having political power. You don't vote for exercise. You vote for power. Who counts as black? The thorny question has quietly found its way before the U.S. Supreme Court again. Ensnared in a major legal battle over the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that could further gut the landmark law. Section 5 was gutted because of Shelby County versus Holder 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case. That could further gut the landmark law and make it harder to protect the political power of voters of color. Not exercise, power, especially African-Americans. The battle is playing out over new maps of congressional voting districts created by Republican-led state legislatures in Alabama and Louisiana after the 2020 census. The fate of the, the fate of the maps rests on how the U.S. Supreme Court rules in the case out of Alabama, Merrill versus Milligan. You're going to hear more and more about this U.S. Supreme Court case. Merrill versus Milligan, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, which the high court heard this month, October 2022, and may set a precedent for lawsuits about Section 2 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. In both cases out of the Deep South, now Alabama's where ground zero was for the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Montgomery, Alabama, Selma, Selma to Montgomery March. In both cases out of the Deep South, states' lower courts have separately found that the maps were drawn in a way, the maps were drawn in a way that likely dilutes black voters' strength at the polls. They're not afraid of exercise. They're afraid of us having political power. Just like in Florida in 1868, when they were trying to prevent a Negro legislature, they were afraid of African-Americans having political power. That would violate the Voting Rights Act in 1965 by giving a minority group, as spelled out in Section 2 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, quote, less opportunity than others, uh, th than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. GOP state officials have pushed back against the analysis that led to these findings partly by questioning a definition of blackness, partly by questioning a definition of blackness that for close to two decades has been the standard in cases focused on the uh, voting power of black people, focused on the voting power of black people and no other racial or ethnic group whom the federal government classifies as a protected minority population. Voting rights cases focused on black voters have used a broad definition of black. 
since a 2003 ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, by the U.S. Supreme Court, that definition of black has included every person who identifies as black on census forms, including people who check off the boxes for black and other racial or ethnic uh, category, such as white, Asian, and Hispanic or Latino, which the federal government considers to be an ethnicity that can be of that can be of any race. Republican state officials, however, have called for a narrower, narrower definition or definitions of blackness that do not include people who also identify with another minority group. So to reduce the political power of African-Americans, they want to narrow who gets classified as black to reduce how many people can vote. Citing no evidence, GOP officials in Alabama argued in lower court filings that limiting the definition to people who mark just, just the black box and do not identify as Latino for the census would be most defensible. And in the Louisiana case of Ardoin, A-R-D-O-I-N a -R -D -O -I -N, versus Robinson, officials have been arguing for the definition to only include people who check off either just the black box or both black and white and do not identify as Latino. Like Afro-Latinos, they're trying to they're trying to lock that out. Before appealing their redistricting case to the Supreme Court, Alabama officials dropped their push to redefine blackness. Before appealing their redistricting case to the Supreme Court, Alabama officials dropped their push to redefine blackness. But the state of Louisiana and its Republican Secretary of State. Kyle Ardoin have asked the court's highest uh, have asked the country's highest court to weigh in with a final word on which definition should be used in Section Two cases, Section Two of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Lower courts have already found that even when using more limited definitions of black as proposed by the Republican officials, the premise of the court's analysis of the voting map does not change, of the voting maps does not change. Still, in one court filing, the U.S. Supreme Court, in one court filing to the U.S. Supreme Court, Louisiana officials say using the more, the more expansive, expansive definition of blackness, which includes all people who identify themselves as black, to analyze the state's new map of congressional districts is an, quote, independent legal error, error, E-R-R-O-R, error, warranting this court's intervention, end quote. A narrower definition of black could end up allowing other redistricting plans to minimize black voting strength which would minimize black voting power.
This is about power, not exercise. How the U.S. Supreme Court decides this case over Alabama's congressional map, however, could have broader implica implications on the political power of all voters of color. Many voting rights advocates are watching to see if enough of the court's conservative majority adopts one of Alabama's more extreme arguments that race cannot be taken into account when drawing uh, voting districts unless there's evidence of intentional racial discrimination. A ruling along these lines can make it virtually impossible to use section, section two of the 1965 Voting Rights Act to challenge voting maps in the future, turning how black is defined in redistricting into a less urgent question. Okay, so read the rest of this article here um, from National Public Radio, NPR.org from October 18th, 2022. Who counts as black in voting maps? Some GOP state officials want that narrow. Now, how many people did not know this was taking place right now? How many people did not know this was taking place right now? Okay. Now, I want to go to uh, this clip here from uh, Alex Wagner's show. Uh, Alex Wagner tonight, uh, MSNBC. She dealt with this topic on uh, October 19, 2022. Uh, that's the same day she had Trevor Noah on. Let's go to this clip. This is Louisiana's congressional delegation. White people in 2020 showed the same trend in Louisiana. Let's start with the great state of Louisiana. So every 10 years, there is a census, right? And the last census in 2020 showed the same trend in Louisiana that was taking place across several southern states. Over the last decade, the white population shrank and the black population grew. White people are now less than 56% of Louisiana's population, and about a third of the population there is black. And yet, this is Louisiana's congressional delegation. Of the state's six members of Congress, five are white Republicans. One is a black Democrat. Because even though Louisiana is one-third black, only one congressional district has a majority black population. That's how state lawmakers drew the congressional maps. But after every census, state lawmakers get to draw new congressional maps. And last year, despite those new census numbers showing a shrinking white population and a growing black population, Louisiana's white Republican lawmakers managed to magically, once again, draw five majority white districts and just one black majority district. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? But throwing a wrench in their plans, a federal court blocked the new map. The federal judge said, essentially, you can't do that. That's illegal. This new map clearly dilutes the black vote in Louisiana, which is prohibited by the Voting Rights Act. So Louisiana's white Republican lawmakers have come up with a truly novel solution to this problem. They're saying, OK, if we can't dilute the black vote, we'll just change the definition of who counts as black. Then there will simply be fewer black people. Problem solved. Here's how NPR explains it. For 20 years, the definition of black for voting purposes has, quote, 
Include every person who identifies as black on census forms, including people who check off boxes for black and any other racial or ethnic categories, such as white, Asian, and Hispanic or Latino. Republican state officials, however, have called for narrower definitions of blackness that do not include people who also identify with another minority group. Louisiana officials have been arguing for the definition to only include people who check off either just the black box or both black and white. It is a neat trick. As if by magic, a whole bunch of black voters would just disappear. The cynicism of the argument that Louisiana is making here is pretty breathtaking. Let's not forget that for much of America's history, a black person was defined by the one-drop rule. If you had any black ancestor amounting to even one drop of blood, then you were black. In the words of one Louisiana historian, there was a, quote, very specific purpose for using this blood math to define racially ambiguous people as black and ultimately preserve white wealth and white political power when anti-miscegenation and other racial segregation laws helped enforce a color line. When blackness meant a lack of political power, white lawmakers wanted the definition of blackness to be as broad as possible. But once blackness was granted a modicum of political power, well, suddenly they wanted that definition to be super narrow. One federal judge in Louisiana has already rejected this idea, saying, quote, it would be paradoxical, to say the least, to turn a blind eye to Louisiana's long and well-documented expansive view of blackness in favor of a definition on the opposite end of the spectrum. But our current Supreme Court may reach a different conclusion. That's where Louisiana's lawmakers are making this case. And honestly, the high court looks poised to gut what is left of the Voting Rights Act, in which case lawmakers in Louisiana and everywhere else would be able to carve up congressional districts however they want. They wouldn't have to redefine blackness because they'd be allowed to ignore black voters entirely. They wouldn't even need to have that one majority black district at all. This court fight, in which Republicans hope to decimate black political power. It is playing out amid a midterm election campaign that has, in many ways, has race and identity at its core. To begin with, the election season has been full of overtly racist appeals to white voters. It's so overt that the Washington Post wrote a whole article ticking off all the racist stuff Republican candidates have done and said in just the last couple weeks. It's headlined, Racist GOP Appeals Heat Up in Final Weeks Before Midterms. From GOP Senator Tommy Tuberville suggesting all crime is committed by black people to TV airwaves blanketed with ads against Democratic candidates, ads full of mugshots of black defendants. Another ad just depicts hordes of black and brown immigrants while a deep voice narrator intones that they are wrecking your schools, ruining your hospitals and threatening your family. I mean, for real, that's an ad that's on the air. In some cases, Republicans have skipped the middleman and just created ads with images of their black Democratic opponents, but with their skin tone noticeably darkened. This is how they are closing this campaign. Crime, immigration, crime, immigration, crime, immigration. You could call it a racist dog whistle or a code, but it's not like they're hiding it. And honestly, this is how they always close. This is how they get Republican voters to come home. I could give you the history of Republicans accusing Democrats of being soft on crime, using mugshots of black people in ads or darkening black politicians' skin, but that would require doing a history of the last 40 years of Republican ad campaigns. And it must say something about this country that no matter what issues are at the top of voters' minds, inflation, the economy, abortion, even the erosion of democracy itself, that year after year, election cycle after election cycle, Republicans can keep going back to this same well. 
Joining us now is Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show. Trevor is also the executive producer. All right. Uh, that's from um, Alex Wagner's show. Uh, Alex Wagner tonight. You can check that out, msnbc.com. And um, they have some clips there, interview with uh, Trevor Noah, uh, et cetera. And uh, when you go to her page, you can listen. To, uh, they have the audio podcast of the full show okay because that clip there that was from the audio podcast of the full show they have clips of the video of her show but um the extended segment that i just played that i wanted they don't have that in video format yet they haven't uploaded that i don't know i guess they're not going to upload it they just have uh like a three minute segment uh dealing with um the they just have a three minute segment of the video dealing with louisiana GOP looks to redefine black to duck racial fairness in voting districts. But I wanted I wanted that full segment. Uh, that's why I played it from the audio podcast. This uh, article that I had up while we were listening to that segment. This is from she mentioned this in the uh, this article in the segment This is from Washington Post, October 15, 2022. Racist GOP appeals heat heat up in final weeks before midterms. Racist GOP appeals heat up in final weeks before midterm. And uh, as, I, as I talked about on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, uh, a lot of these Senate races are tightening and some of these House races, but especially a lot of these Senate races are tightening and Republicans are driving home the message of crime and inflation. Crime and inflation, also immigration, some, but especially crime and inflation. And it has a racial tinge to it when they deal with crime. OK, so this is why we have to fight back against that. Democrats have to message better uh, as well. And this is why elections are. This is why this 2022 midterm election is probably the most important midterm election in the last 100 years. OK, maybe the last 150 years or so. Uh, lastly, I want to go to this, uh, we're squeezing this last story here. This deals with the, uh, Okoye massacre of, uh, November 2nd, 1920, November 2nd, 1920. And let me pull this up here. Okoye massacre. We've talked about this before. This ties right into uh, this history of the voter suppression in Florida. And this deals with when a white mob, um, when a white mob unleashed the worst election day violence in U.S. history. Once again, they were not afraid of us exercising. Okay, uh, Zen Education Project has some information on this. This is a good article from uh, the Washington Post also on this topic as well. But the Zen Education Project, um, November 2nd, 1920, the Okoye Massacre, O-C-O-E-E, -E, the Okoye Massacre. And this is uh, Julius July Perry. Um, 
who who was killed, okay, uh, in this in this uh, surrounding this massacre, uh, in response to an attempt by African Americans to exercise their legal and democratic right to vote, they were they were voting for power, not exercise. At least fifty African Americans were murdered in a brutal massacre in Okoy, Florida on November 2nd, 1920, in what is now called the Okoy Massacre, what is now called the Okoy Massacre. Here's a description from uh, Okoy on Fire, the 1920 Election Day Massacre. A quiet Florida citrus town became the scene of a gruesome racial cleansing that uh, a gruesome, a gruesome racial cleansing that purged the entire population for over 60 years. Okay. And I'll just share an excerpt with you. You can read the rest of this on November 1st, the day before the election, November 2nd um, was election day, 1920 with robes and crosses. The Ku Klux Klan paraded through the streets of uh, the black town. Let's see here. The Ku Klux Klan paraded through the streets of the black of, of two black communities in Okoy, Florida, into the night. With megaphones, they warned that not a single Negro will be permitted to vote. And if any of them dare to do so, there would be dire consequences. Now, remember, I talked about the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and resurgence to power because by 1915, 50th anniversary of the Klan being founded December 24th, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, the Klan had lost power. A lot of the Klan's members had died out, okay, because they're 50 years old. The, the, the organization is 50 years old. But the move, the birth of a nation, rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan. So they've regained political power and have increased in, in size, increased in numbers by 1920. Election day, November 2nd, uh, 1920, came and at least some blacks did attempt to vote in Orange County in Florida. However, none were permitted to enter their respective polling places. White enforcers camped out around the centers and poll workers were given instructions to deflect their attempts. One by one by uh, one by one would be black voters were turned away either by threats of violence or by poll workers who found their names, quote unquote, mysteriously absent from the voter registration rolls. Posters instructed them to get documentation from notary uh, public R.C. Bigelow, the, the initials R.C. Bigelow, B-I-G-E-L-O-W, to verify that they were indeed registered to vote. Conveniently, however, R.C. Bigelow was unable to be located because he was out on a fishing trip that day. With little other option, most return to their homes without casting their ballots. Mose Norman, M-O-S-E, Mose Norman would not be so easily deterred. After being turned away that morning in his Akoi 
uh, precinct, Okoye, Florida precinct, he rode to Orlando, Florida to seek the counsel of Judge Cheney, to seek the counsel of Judge Cheney. The uh, attorney instructed him to write down the names of any African-Americans who were not permitted to vote and also the names of the poll workers who had denied their constitutional right, denied them their constitutional right. Judge Cheney said a lawsuit against the county could be brought to contest this violation. Mose Norman returned to Okoye, Florida with these instructions, along with a handful of African-American citizens, again, seeking to vote. As you can imagine, things did not go well. After again being forcibly turned away, Mose Norman demanded the poll workers' names and exclaimed, quote, we will vote by God, end quote. We will vote by God, end quote. Now, the response from the Ku Klux Klan, these cowards, was a massacre. And they're probably related to some of the January 6th insurrectionists to try to overthrow the government. And, and Donald Trump racialized the election results in four key cities that have a high African-American population, Detroit, Atlanta, Georgia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. One of the people killed was Ju Julius July Perry, whose picture I showed you. And they go through and uh, give a, a further description of what happened. Okay, Julius July Perry had become had become the well-respected godfather of the African American community. He served as a deacon uh, in the church and the local labor leader or straw boss. It was said that anyone seeking to employ black laborers needed to speak with him first. He was an admired, brave, and rational thinker, a sort of civil rights leader. Before there was a civil rights movement, he encouraged young blacks to be educated and stand up for themselves as first class citizens, as first class citizens. Now, uh, Julius Perry's wife, Estelle, his three sons and daughter, Caritha Perry Caldwell, lived on a large estate that included their home and several barns and outbuildings. They regularly uh, opened their doors to anyone if needed. If anyone was in trouble, if anyone was in trouble, they knew they could find advice and sanctuary in the Perry home. Okay. Um, so they go through and there's a video here you can watch as well that uh, it tells the history also, but it, this deals with uh, the Okoy massacre of November 2nd, 1920, that happened on election day. And it was geared towards suppressing the African-American vote and punishing African-Americans for trying to vote. Okay, you had approximately, um, you had at least 50 African-Americans who were murdered in this massacre in the, the, the uh, piece from the Washington Post, the article from the Washington Post, uh, talks about this and let me see what was the name uh yeah the koi massacre this article here from the washington post the um 
the worst election day violence in U.S. history. Who has never heard of the Okoye massacre in Florida? A white mob unleashed the worst election day violence in U.S. history in Florida a century ago. This article is from November 2nd, 2020 from the Washington Post by Jillian Brockell. Jillian uh, Brockell. Lastly, the um, piece that I, the, the fact sheet that I talk about a lot, you hear me talk about a lot, and I talk, and I was on uh, Faraji Muhammad's show this past week, uh, I think that was on Tuesday, uh, The Culture, on, uh, which is on the Black Star Media Network. Uh, I think that was uh, Tuesday, October 18th. We were on, we were talking about midterm elections and politics and history. Um, the fact sheet that you hear me talk about often at whitehouse.gov that documents how the policies of the Biden-Harris administration are helping the African-American community is a 19-page document. It has been updated. It was last updated June 19th, 2022. Before that, it was updated February 28th, uh, 2022. It's uh, 22 pages now. I encourage everybody to read this, share this with your friends and family. This, ex this explains how elections have consequences. This explains how the policies of the Biden-Harris administration are helping the African-American community. A lot of these policies are uh, in jeopardy especially bills that have passed Congress, okay? And what's in jeopardy is getting more bills passed if uh, Republicans stay back control of the House and the Senate or even just the House, because then they can stop bills from being passed, like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the Moore Act, which would uh, legalize marijuana at the federal level and expunge marijuana convictions going back to 1971. Okay, there's so much at stake here, so much on the line here. This is not a game. This piece here, um, so it talks about some of the things we talked about with before. It shows how the American Rescue Plan is helping the African Americans and has helped the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. It talks about the uh, $5.8 billion in funding for HBCUs in 2021 alone, a record. Uh, amount of funding for HBCUs. I think it includes the, uh, I think it talks about the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill also, because that happened after February 28th, 2022. But go through and uh, um, read this here in its entirety, okay? And this is an example of how elections have consequences. Assisting black landowners in resolving title issues. An estimated 60% of black on land in the South is heirs property, property that passes through inheritance without a will and that as a result has historically rendered owners ineligible for U.S. Department of Agriculture programs, including lending. Okay, go through and read all this because this is deep. And I don't know anybody else that has been talking about this document. I told Reverend Al Sharpton about it when I called it, when I used to call into his show, when I called into the show a few uh a couple months ago, and he had me as a, a co-host on the show for two hours, his radio show, Keeping It Real. 
I'm the one that told him about this document. I haven't heard Joanne Reed talk about this, Tiffany Cross, anybody on MSNBC. So I'm going to post a link here and uh, share this with your friends and family. Take a screenshot of this. Th this is information that we need for midterm elections to understand what has happened the past two years, to understand what is at stake. Okay, as always, um, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. So let's keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills. So we definitely appreciate the support. Uh, when you go to our Cash App account, it, it, the, the uh, our Cash App tag is dollar sign the AHN show S H O W, and you can click right here the link, and it has the uh, the QR code, so you can scan that. I'm still trying to shut down the uh, fake African History Network Cash App accounts out here. So that's why I have this graphic here that shows this is our official tag, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. There's like five fake accounts out there that I've identified. I'm still trying to get them shut down. I talked to Cash App about a week ago. They're still investigating. Okay. And be sure to register for the online history classes I teach on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. We have the bundle pack. You get both classes for $130. Just click right here, register here. Uh, but ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, Wednesdays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then uh, Tuesdays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Even after the class is over with, you can still go back and watch the entire course. You'll still have access to it, okay? All right, look, we have to get out of here. Thanks for... Uh, joining us for today's show give us a thumbs up give us a heart give us a like on this broadcast follow us on our fan page the african history network on facebook the african history network on facebook and our youtube channel michael m hotep i m h o t e p uh on youtube uh turn on live notifications so you know when we go live also uh you can order the uh our new bundle pack 15 dvd uh bundle pack 15 of my lectures um, Af uh, African history awakens the African mind from mental death. Okay. That's at the African history network.com. Just click on shop. We'll put that on the homepage of the website. Uh, also, and we'll post the link, uh, here again for that. And it's in the thread of the broadcast also. Okay. Remember right now, it's correct. Wrong behavior is not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Hotep, everybody. Hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecture writer, and historian. I hope you are enjoying this uh, broadcast that you're watching right now. I wanted to take a couple of minutes and let you know about the online history courses that I teach. So if you like this broadcast that you're watching, you definitely want to register for uh, the online history classes that I teach. Uh, we normally teach the classes on uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, uh, our next class of uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade is going to take place on Thursday, November 17th, 2022, uh, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if we look at a uh, brief overview of the class and the class is on sale 
um, the uh, the classes on sale sixty dollars, uh, regularly one hundred and thirty dollars. Okay, so we have the class uh, discounted right now, and if we look at a uh, brief overview of the class as well, uh, I've been teaching this class uh, since twenty seventeen. Okay, and I put together the, the uh, curriculum uh, for the class. I've been studying history uh, thirty years, and we can't start. Uh, the study of our history and slavery, even though understanding the transatlantic slave trade is very important. Uh, we can't start in slavery. We have to deal with thousands of years of, of history that uh, lead up to the transatlantic slave trade uh, taking place. We look at the 800-year occupation of Europe by the African Africans known as the Moors as well to understand what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place, okay? So uh, a brief overview of the class. We can't start studying our history uh, in slavery. Uh, even when we study the transatlantic slave trade, which is important to study, we can't start in 1619 or in, the, or in the 1440s when the Portuguese get involved in the transatlantic slave trade. We have to understand the history chronologically and deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors, who enter into the Iberian Peninsula, today known as Spain and Portugal, uh, today uh, who, who enter into the Iberian Peninsula, today known as Spain and Portugal, from North Africa in 711 AD. This course not only deals with the transatlantic slave trade, but it also deals with thousands of years of history that leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. August 20th, uh, 2019 marked the 400th year anniversary of the 20 and odd Africans who came into Point Comfort uh, in Virginia, August 20th, 1619 on the White Lion pirate ship. Um, and this would later be the uh, colony of Virginia. Okay. And when those uh, 20 and odd Africans came in, codified slave laws did not exist in any of the 13 colonies. Codified slave laws don't come to uh, Massachusetts until 1641. They don't come to the Virginia until about 1660 or 1661. Now, this year, uh, 2019, was known as the year of return. The year of return, as many African-Americans uh, were reconnecting to Africa and traveling to Ghana and other West African countries. When we discuss the transatlantic slave trade, we have to first understand that African people are the original people of North, Central, and South America and have been in the land we call the United States of America at least 51,700 years. Okay, so we have the information on the homepage of our website, uh, AfricanWork.com, TheAfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, we also, uh, so you can register there for it, uh, for the class. And we have uh, a bundle pack where you can register for both classes at a discount. So normally uh, the classes are $130 each. They're on sale right now, uh, $60. So we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived. They're recorded. You can go back and watch them anytime. And uh, we're going to do at least 10 weeks uh, for these sessions. We may do 11 or 12 just to give us enough to get all the information in. So click uh Click right here for register here. You can use a debit card or credit card. We have the bundle pack information here as well. Uh, 
the bundle was on sale, $100, uh, it's regularly $130. Click right here to register here for the bundle. And then the second class that I teach uh, on Tuesdays is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. That next class is going to be on Tuesday, November 22nd, Tuesday, November 22nd. OK, and this class picks up where um, basically we're understanding the transatlantic slave trade leads off. This is another uh, 10 week online class. And once again, we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch these classes a year from now, two years from now. You'll still have full access to the class. Okay, so um, with this course here, a brief overview, uh, in the aftermath of the insurrection uh, a year ago, the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building, um, at the U.S. Capitol, many leading historians drew parallels between the violence that we saw that day and the Reconstruction era, which was 1865 to 1877. Uh, and this was the period of political revolution directly following the uh, U.S. Civil War, which was 1861-1865. This 10-week online course will analyze U.S. history primarily from the African-American perspective, beginning in 1865 with uh, the uh, 40 Acres and a Mule, Special Field Order Number 15. And actually, we, we start in 1800 with the 1800 Census, and we look at 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution. And we go and look at history uh, chronologically leading up to the Civil War taking place. And then uh, we do at the end of the Civil War, uh, uh, Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, we deal with Special Field Order Number 15, 40 Acres and a Mule, January 1865, and then we look at the Reconstruction Era. We go through and look at history chronologically through to uh, 1968. So we'll look at the Reconstruction Era, 1865, 1877, the Red Summer of, um, the red summer of uh, 1919, the year after the Civil War ended. I'm just sorry, sorry, the year after World War I ended in 1918, the Red Summer, where you had uh, over 25 major race riots across the country. Uh, we look at the Jim Crow era, uh, which is the period of time after Reconstruction ends. We go and look at the 1880s, 1890s, uh, 1900s. We look at the Jim Crow era and when the southern states are rewriting their state constitutions to impose poll taxes and literacy tests like um, the Mississippi State Convention of 1890. We look at World War I, the Great Migration, 1915 to 1970, six million African-Americans migrate from the South up North and out West. World War II, uh, the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement. To understand uh, what happened to us after slavery ended, okay? What were the laws and policies put in place to put us uh, where we are today to understand where we need to go from here? OK, so the second class is uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. OK, it's important to understand the chronology of history to get a better understanding of how we got to where we are now to understand where we need to go from here. Unfortunately, uh, uh, some of this history is repeating itself. OK, so we have this available at our website as well the African History Network, uh, com. Normally the classes are on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You can share this information with your children. 
I would say the information is PG-13. It's very visual. I, I do a PowerPoint presentation with book references, articles, video clips. Uh, usually for the book references, I show you the excerpts on the screen. So, uh, and we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. So as soon as you register for the classes, uh, there's content that you can start watching right now. Okay, so hopefully you learn a lot in these classes. Keep watching our uh, our broadcast. Keep watching uh, this video that you're watching. And uh, follow us on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, and uh, uh, Michael M. Hotep on uh, Instagram as well. Remember, right now is correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Also, um, also listen to, you can also listen to our uh, radio show. Um, you, you can also listen to our radio show on Sundays, uh, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the African History Network show. Uh, we have the information right on the homepage of our website right at the top. Okay, so uh, we have our social media information, social media handles, and information about the radio show. And you can click right here to listen to audio podcasts of the radio show as well. Uh, we're on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the African History Network show on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF uh, in Detroit. You can also download the iHeartRadio app and search for 9, 10 a.m. Uh, WFDF and listen live or the TuneIn radio app that you can listen live there as well. Okay. All right. Remember, right now is correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And uh, thanks for watching uh, our broadcast. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, also, if you want to support the African History Network, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, uh, and through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. The substance, keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, uh, pay some of the bills. And we have our, uh, our Cash App information and social media. Uh, uh, cash app information and PayPal information right on the homepage of our website also. Okay. So check that out as well. All right. Remember right now is correct. Your own behavior is not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace.